Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering auto insurance policies designed to help for when the worst happens. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. And New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. With Trump's impeachment inquiry entering a new phase, the stakes for the Republicans are rising. What's their recourse? To deny the facts, to peddle the story that Ukraine meddled in our elections, and to have convenient memory lapses I do not recall might as well be the GOP's new slogan, even though the party's mascot, the elephant, is known for its ironclad memory. We open the lines and ask you, what hope is there for sane governing? We have two parties operating in two totally different realities. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, since 2000, more than 400,000 Americans have died from opioid overdoses, and as many as 275 have died in one Ohio county alone. A New York Times investigation tracks how opioids ravaged the class of 2000 and robbed teenagers of their future. Medical ethicist Art Kaplan joins us for this and more. Then we talk all things NATO with Juliet Kayam, where disputes among leaders seem to be overriding any sense of world unity. That's all next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Marjorie is out. She'll be back tomorrow. Jared Bowen, Executive Arts Editor at WGBH is sitting in. Hello there, Jared. Hi there. Great to be with you. And a pretty historic day. By the way, the Judiciary Committee hearings, which we are monitoring, we'll bring you updates throughout the day, began at 10 o'clock this morning. Four law professors were testifying about what the constitutional provision about impeachment means and how it applies to the facts as they see them. Three of those are appointed by or picked by the Democratic majority on the committee, one by the Republican minority. As I said, throughout the day, we will keep you updated on what is going on there. But first, in 2017, I think it was, presidential historians ranked Abraham Lincoln the greatest president in our nation's history. In that same survey, President Trump, Trump came in last. But does that matter in 2019 when 53% of Republicans prefer Trump to the Civil War hero? That's what a survey conducted by The Economist and YouGov.com found when they asked who's a better president, Trump or Lincoln, seeing how Republicans are defending Trump. With a debunked theory about Ukraine's role in the 2016 elections, it becomes quite clear why the GOP would be unlikely to align itself with Honest Abe. You know, one of the many revelations that come out of this impeachment process so far is not just that the country is split on the issues, but that our government, in my opinion, is broken in two. The Democrats appear to be following the facts, at least as they were presented in the Intelligence Committee hearing, and the Republicans are running with a story that has been punctured by our own intelligence community. And again, if they agreed on the facts, it is perfectly reasonable, or most of the facts, to dispute whether or not those facts merit impeachment, but that is not even close to the case here. So we're opening the lines asking you, can there be a true resolution when we have the Democrats and Republicans managing this impeachment process from two really totally different uh, realities? And beyond impeachment, does this not worry you about the future? You have Senator Kennedy from Louisiana peddling falsehoods about Ukraine. You have Devin Nunez, the ranking minority member of the Intelligence Committee. We find out from call logs yesterday, speaking to Rudy Giuliani and one of his indicted associates just days before uh, Jovanovich, Ambassador Jovanovich, was removed. It is really, it's like the Twilight Zone. Our number is 877-301-8970. I don't know if I've explained this well, uh, Jared, but let me say it again. I'm watching TV last night. I'm saying, 
it was reasonable to me if Republicans say, listen, there's some things we wish Donald Trump had done differently. There's some things that may have crossed the line. However, we don't think they merit removal. But that's not the case. There is literally as if there are two different universes. And as I say, it not only worries me about the impeachment process itself, but this is going to last beyond impeachment into the future. Where What is it? Uh, Dana Patrick Moynihan said, you're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. But the two parties in Washington believe they are. Well, it just comes down to that. I mean, Representative Doug Collins, I think, uh, Republican Representative Doug Collins at the top of the hearing that we were just watching said there are no set facts. That seems to be the simple talking point among the Republicans here, that there is no essential smoking gun that can be pointed to. So as we hear these constitutional experts that are testifying now uh, before the House Judiciary Committee talk about the impeachable offenses as they see them without really getting mired into the facts, but just the actions that have been described so far, and that's what it's going to come down to. Do you have facts as the Republicans want to see them, or can you take the the, the the descriptions of the president's actions as the Democrats are describing them? But you know how dangerous it is? And not only does Donald Trump question his own agencies and institutions in the federal government, essentially with the Republican talking point his in this impeachment thing here is that the whole intelligence community doesn't know what it's talking about. Okay, yeah, Russia may have been involved, but it wasn't just Russia. It was Ukraine. There are no facts. There are no facts to support that, yet that's what that alternative reality is what they're running on. And it it, it seems to me, if that's what prevails throughout this, and I assume it will on party line votes, is that how that's how we'll approach everything uh, going for I did on TV last night. What I'm obsessed with right now is whether or not the world according to Trump, and again, you may love it, you may not like it, the world according to Trump, does it last beyond Donald Trump? Or is it just a function of the time that he's president of the United States? Whenever that ends, and I am growing, I'm in an increasing way convinced that this alternative reality thing and these two different universes for the two parties is a long-lasting thing that, uh, particularly with the courts the way they are, thanks to uh, the really the power in, of uh, Donald Trump. I mean, my one answer to that is something I saw Doris Kearns Goodwin echo again when I think I saw one of the political talk shows this weekend, and I've heard other historians like John Meacham say this. It has been this bad before. We have seen this. We have seen the government be this bipartisan and political before, and there has been a way out of it. Uh, I know it seems dark, but you you have to believe that because we have set up these as these constitutional experts are talking about right now, we have framed the government in such a way uh, that it will be productive in the end. Well, we're going to get to calls in a second at 877-301-8970. And if you're as worried as I am about the future, using this impeachment thing, as important as it is, sort of a microcosm of this grotesque partisan divide in Washington and around the country. Last night, before I did my show, I was reading somewhat Margaret Chase Smith, the United States Senator from Maine, said about Joe McCarthy in 1950, you know, that thing in which she appealed to people's better angels. And what struck me, and by the way, it took a while for people to have the courage to stand up to McCarthy, a fellow Republican, fellow of uh, Margaret Chase Smith's. But what troubles me most now is not that the vast majority of Republicans, for example, are where they are, but that all Republicans are where they are. Where is the Margaret Chase Smith? Where is the one Republican? A lot of people thought it was going to be Mitt Romney. Exactly, yeah. It surely hasn't been of late. Where's the one Republican who at least says... This deeply concerns me. This does run afoul 
of uh, uh, of how this country should be run, even if they want to end up by saying, and I don't believe this is an impeachable offense, it's just an, events that, an offense that deeply concerns me, the fact that there's not one, and the assumption is that Dan Goldman, the, the counsel, Democratic counsel in the Intelligence Committee, is right when he was talking to Yovanovitch, is when he's saying to her, why did nobody come to your defense from your boss, other people in the State Department, when you're being smeared with, with, with accusations that were not true, or they just worried that they'll end up with a tweet in their inbox or on their Twitter account from Donald Trump. And Yovanovitch said, yes, and I really think that's what it is. He has really changed. You can mock Donald Trump all you want. He has changed the world uh, and this country in ways that are immeasurable and I think will have some permanence, as I say, particularly because of the impact he's having on the judiciary. The number is 877-301-8970. As I say, the fourth of four professors, Jonathan Turley, from GW Law School. I believe he is the one of the four that the Republicans requested testify. They're giving their 10-minute uh, spiels about uh, what the constitutional provision on impeachment says, how it applies to the facts, at least as they see them. And then I assume the uh, the uh, warfare will uh, ensue with the Republicans and the Democrats immediately after Turley's testimony. And again, we'll bring you updates throughout the day. Well, talking about facts, too, you have to remember this is also a day in which the New York Times is reporting that the attorney general is doubting the own internal audit about the start of the Russian interference investigation by the FBI. So when you have the essentially the head of the Justice Department questioning his own report, it is murky territory well, right you know, now. Well, you know, this is Mueller redux. I mean, it really yes. is. His, his brilliance, and I don't mean this facetiously, in the part when you don't like what you're about to hear – then you do what is being called a prebuttal in terms of the intelligence committee. You you preempt what's going to happen. He did the Mueller report according to Barr, which turned out not to be the Mueller report, at least in Soto. And now his inspector general is about to come out with something he doesn't like either. So he's essentially trying to form public opinion before the public sees it. This is really – this is such a mess. Again, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, regardless of about how you feel about a continued presidency of Donald Trump, at least in my mind. Let's start with John and Gardner. You're first on Boston Public Radio with me, Jim Browdy, and Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. Hi, John. Also known as J&J. What's up, boys? How you doing? <laughs> Hi there. Good. Jim, did you hit, were your ears ringing yesterday? Why? When you called the storm some sort of a nuisance storm or a piddling storm, whatever you called it. I don't know what I said, uh, yeah. Well, come out here and help me move my two <laughs> No, I got a lot. Hey. We got a lot of email last night saying that you're you're very myopic. Boston may not be a big deal, but everywhere else is. So my apologies. I'm glad you brought it up. We, What's we up? We all love you anyway. Well, Jim. I'm sure you do. Um, but go ahead, Jim. No, yeah. I, I love you almost. As I know much you as do. Go ahead. Um, last night, watching, I watched the six o'clock Fox News program. It's called Special Report. Yeah. They have an hour. I'm going to give you a quick example of why the Fox is so good, Jim. They took, and I'm, I have no doubt this was coordinated with the Republicans. Kevin McCarthy and the rest of the leadership had a press conference yesterday at six ten or something. Mm-hmm. They covered the 21 minutes completely. And you know what the first thing Brett Baer said when he got back? Well, we, co- we covered this. It was about 21 minutes. And this afternoon we covered uh, Adam, um, what's his name? Shift. Uh, press conference. Shift press conference. Well, that was at 310 in, in the afternoon. And so they're going to claim they have equal coverage because they showed a press conference at 3 o'clock and one during their main 6 o'clock news. And it was all, of course, just the talking points. But anyway, we're in two different worlds. The people on Fox talk about their facts, and the people on the other cable channels talk about their facts. And nowhere shall the two meet. 
Yeah, but Gang, like, can I tell you, I, you were singing Marjorie's tune big time. As you know, Marjorie mentions this almost every day, and I'm not being dismissive at all about what the two of you say. But I guess my naive hope was that while partisan news will do what it does, uh, people who are elected to serve not just their constituents but the United States of America will have a little more honor and honesty and decency. And obviously – I'm wrong. I, I, I'm just, you know, and by the way, let me be clear here. There's, there's games playing on both sides. I thought Adam Schiff, who did a great job at the, in the Intelligence Committee, was pathetic yesterday, too, when he had his afternoon press conference and he's saying an answer to a question. I think the question was, did he commit impeachable offenses? And his answer is, well, I'm reserving judgment. Well, no, you're not. At the end of the impeachment hearing, his summary was essentially, let's get this guy out of town as fast as we can vote. So obviously they did a focus group, the Democrats did, and said, you're supposed to look impartial until the Judiciary Committee has done its thing. And then when they come out with the report, you say, well, obviously I'm now convinced. I mean, you know, be straight, everybody, on all sides, and we might be better off. John, thanks for your call. 877-301-897. I really am in a frenzy over this. I know it's not new, but I guess it's because the prebuttal from the Republicans came out, uh, I love that term, two days ago, and then the Democratic thing came out last night. And by the way, there are some new facts. I assume most of us, like you, like most of us, thought that it would just be a summary of the testimony. They got these call logs which showed that Devin Nunes, again, the ranking Republican, is talking to Giuliani and Lev, whatever his name is, one of the indicted associates of of Giuliani, shortly before Yovanovitch disappears. In, the, in several phone calls. Several phone calls. It's just – it is so, so – and, the, you know, the interesting question – we'll ask Juliet Kayyem at noon – does Nunez have to recuse himself? I mean, he is now, as the, the term we've all learned, a fact witness in this case. He is named as somebody who is involved in the guys that were peddling this crap in uh, Ukraine. In any case, Carolyn and Worcester, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Hi. Well, you wonder why um, the Republicans are they, as they are. The whole thing has become religionized. The worst of religion has won. It, remember that bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Well, now it's Trump said it. I believe it. That settles it. I think that is what it that is. In a nutshell, pardon me? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and I mean, and there's no hope. I mean, you talk to religious people, and they'll look at you and go, well, no, that's in the Bible, and I believe it, and I don't need facts. Well, just they've just trans, transferred that whole mindset over to religion, and they don't need facts. Trump said it. They believe it. That's it. Well, as we heard, what did Rick Perry say? He's the chosen one last week. Well, Donald Trump sort of said he was the chosen one, too. So I guess there is that uh, connection. Carolyn, thanks for the call. And, you know, the other thing is it's not just troubling the elected officials who know better because they have access to all these intelligence reports. Obviously, they wouldn't be playing this game if they didn't believe their constituents were okay with this. It is okay to say uh, Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election, even though there's no evidence it did, because I assume the folks back home are Buying that too, I guess. I mean, the opportunity that I've had to ask more high-profile people in this country who are experts in these matters, everyone goes back to the same thing. When you ask why there isn't more resistance from the Republican Party to even be open to understanding some of what the Democrats might be arguing, it all goes back. They say the same thing, fear. But they never trace that forward. What does fear mean? So they get voted out of office. Is that the be-all, end-all? Do they fear livelihood is at stake if they do get voted out of office? But fundamentally, that's what everyone says. This, This is driven completely by fear. And that's why you haven't seen more Republicans 
offer any skepticism whatsoever. You know, by the way, standing up to people in power who have some control over your life, I'm not suggesting it is easy at all. And Donald Trump wields it with very skillfully, uh, uh, I would argue. But again, I'll say it for the 500th time. I know it's driving people nuts. Where's one person saying it? Where's one person saying Remember the guy that I've mentioned to you all repeatedly, my favorite congressman, Francis, uh, whatever his name is, from Florida. What was his name? Francis Rooney? The guy, Who's the guy who... Rooney, thank you, Arjun. He's the guy who stood up and said, I do have some serious questions. He's a congressman from... Uh, from Florida. And we're all saying, good for you, even if you don't vote for impeachment, at least you have an open mind, unlike a lot of your colleagues. What did he announce the day after he announced that? That he's retiring <laughs> from Congress. It's like a comedy. It is unbelievable. Where is, again, where is the Margaret Chase Smith in the Republican Party willing to at least challenge some of the the fictional narrative, to quote uh, uh, um Fiona Hill, uh, vis-a-vis this Ukraine thing. Where do you want to go next? Uh, let's go to Michael calling from Lowell. Hi, Michael. Hi, Michael. How are you? Oh, gentlemen. Glad I got through it today. Good. Uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out which is more despicable, uh, what these uh, you know, gentlemen in the minority are, are espousing on, at the hearings, or that they just if they really believe that, or if they're just saying that to satisfy a base, which is, I think, I, I don't, I can't decide which is more despicable. Well, one thing I can say, I mean, I don't know if you're asking which is true. I, I, it is not remotely possible. Well, I don't think either of them are true. <laughs> well, it's not possible that uh, that there are a lot of really smart members of Congress, some not so smart. It is not remotely possible that the majority of Republicans in Congress believe that Donald Trump did nothing wrong, and even if it's not impeachable in their mind, and that Ukraine was the primary mover with this crowd strike thing uh, and the 2016, it's just not possible. It's not possible. And that's why, Michael, almost every time we have a Democratic member of Congress on the show, I always ask, what do they say? What are your Republican colleagues with whom you are friendly? What do they say in the cloakroom? What do they say at the gym? What do they say when you're eating lunch in private? And, you know, almost every one of them say, and I have no way to prove that this is true, that they know how pathetic this is, but that they have no choice. Maybe it's the fear thing that uh, that uh, Jerry was talking about. Michael, thanks for the call. All right, we are talking about a split-screen reality in Washington, asking you if the impeachment process is being jeopardized by partisan politics as the House Judiciary Committee impeachment hearings are underway. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Jared Bones, sitting in for Marjorie. She's back tomorrow. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the impeachment process, asking if you think it's problematic, not just for the impeachment, but for going forward, Democrats and Republicans are operating with two totally different realities, not just two two totally different opinions, but two totally different assessments of fact. And by the way, after the four, uh, we're about an hour and 20 minutes into this Judiciary Committee hearing, four law professors are talking about what the uh, impeachment clause of the Constitution has to say and what is mostly happening in between procedural motions being made by Republicans. And I was not aware of this, but on the Judiciary Committee, you are automatically entitled to a roll call vote. So every time there's a motion from the Republicans and then there's a move to table it by a Democrat, uh, the Democrats obviously win because they have more members of the committee. And then the Republicans ask for a roll call vote, which they're entitled to. And all 41 members have to be asked individually 
uh, what their vote is. So it's causing this to be not only a, a slow process, but I'm assuming part of the goal is to have people turn off the television or turn off the radio or stop monitoring this thing here or elsewhere. And I would bet that it's probably uh, working. Jeff, you're in West Warwick, Rhode Island. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey there. Hi, hi, Jim and Jared. Hi. Uh, I appreciate you taking my call. Sure. Uh, you know, I am just standing here shaking. I am so livid. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm constantly bright, uh, grinding my teeth. I mean, th- th- you can tell how frustrated yeah. I am. I feel like this country is being sold out. And we have Trump, I feel, is a traitor. The Republicans who are supporting him are traitors. Those who voted for him, I feel, are part of a cult. And I'm watching this, and I can't believe what is happening to this country. How will, we, how will this country ever re, uh, return to where it was, where we have any sort of respect? Well, you know, it's interesting I, you say that Jared and I, during the brief break, were going back and forth. Jared is more where Marjorie at least used to be. You want to state where your position is, Jared, there? Which is based on what I hear the historians, the great historians of our time talk about, that we've been here before. It's been worse, and we have gotten ourselves out of it. And I think as somebody who can't look at another 60 years of my life, if I live that long, to, to look at this so negatively, I think that we will find a way out of it. But we yeah, have but- to hit bottom, and we... We are. And Jeff, my wait, response wait, 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 to wait, 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 I'm not going to cut you off. My response to Jared's optimism, if I may call it that, is what he and others who share his worldview, which I wish I did, leave out is the judiciary. Is that even if yes. times change and members of Congress who are obstructionist on both sides disappear, uh, 42 year old uh, federal judges uh, don't disappear for decades. And if they are uh, uh, Trumpian in outlook and are locked in, to that worldview, I, I think change will come much more slowly. But go ahead, Jeff. You can finish up. I, I, I feel that the judiciary has been hijacked. And, uh, you know, we didn't have social media 50 years ago or 30 years ago. This is something totally new. And when you can start tweeting on an instant basis and people around the world see uh, see what's coming from you, the, the, the president of the United States, it, it, it's no wonder that we don't have the respect we, we used to. I mean, it, it, it's happening practically overnight, and that is what's killing me. Jeff, Absolutely killing me. Thank you for your uh, uh, call. I wish you uh, better health, yeah, uh, at least I, psychological uh, health. You know, uh, one thing I should say when you say, I think you use the expression that the federal judiciary is being hijacked. I, I don't agree. I think those who, for example, were rated unqualified by the American Bar Association obviously should not be confirmed. But beyond that, to quote uh, 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 Barack Obama, elections have consequences. A judge who said, by the way, the first interview that that candidate Trump ever did where he was asked about uh, litmus tests for uh, federal court appointees was me and Marjorie in New Hampshire, where he said he wanted them to be, quote, bright. That was his word. And uh, pro-life. And uh, he was later he was asked in a follow up interview right after us. We just heard you say pro-life, who's an example of a federal judge who would fit that uh, criterion. And he say, he cited his sister, who was a federal court judge, not realizing that his sister was actually pro-choice, which <laughs> details. But, but the point is, Jeff, he said what he was going to pick. And other than those who are unqualified, he's entitled to pick very conservative judges because that's what a president does. By the way, John Turley, just a quick summary of the of the testimony from the four uh, uh, law scholars, law professors so far. John Turley was the uh, man picked from GW, who was the GW Law School, who was picked by the Republican minority. He was the sole one, according to one of our 
colleague Zoe to say he was concerned about the proceedings. He says Trump's call was, meaning the July 25th call, was far from perfect. The House has every right to inquire, seek impeachment. But this is not how you impeach a president. He said they're unsubpoenaed witnesses. This has moved too fast. And that is true. Uh, and some of the witnesses who didn't appear, the Rep- Democrats chose not to subpoena because they didn't want to delay the process. Turley, I think, in a good faith kind of way, suggests that was a rush to judgment that was a mistake. And I, I think there may be some merit to that. 877-301-8970. Let's go to Lori in Middleborough. Hi, Lori. Lori. Hi, Lori. Hi, guys. How you doing? Great. Um, so I have just two points. One of them, I'm a religious ed director for... Uh, teenagers. Uh-huh. I've been doing it for over 20 years. Yep. And one of the things I think this has started a while ago because I know I've seen the change in them. And that's a thing called relative truth. Like what's true for you is true. And a lot of people kind of go down that road of, you know, well, we want to give everybody the, you know, we want to make be nice to everybody. Everybody can have their own opinions, their own truth. And, um, they have kids over the years, it used to be that cheating was definitely wrong. Now it's like, well, it's not really wrong because some people need to do it and everybody does it. Um, and I think this lends itself to where we find ourselves with Trump. I think you were totally right. You know who started this? I think it was actually our friend Chuck Todd on Meet the Press had Kellyanne Conway on. And I believe she coined the phrase alternative facts. Did she, I think it was her. I know it was her. I think it was on Meet the Press. And from that moment on, it was acceptable, as you said, your kids believe, to, you know, that facts are not facts. Everybody's entitled to their own facts, which they didn't used to be. But I, I, I think you say it very well, Lori. Thank you for the uh, for the uh, call. 877-301-8970. You know, the, the caller Jeff a while ago, he did poke one. He found the Achilles heel in my optimism, which is, is I also worry about the social media. And I think if, if you go back to the historians, they will argue that media has changed or, or the forms of media have mm-hmm. changed and advanced in every generation. Um, but we are seeing it so fast now that you can see this, as he was saying, reinforced instantaneously. And I think it probably goes into a lot of what Laurie was saying, too, especially if you have what you want uh, to believe echoed in the echo chamber that is social Social media, this world, it is it's easier to be in that realm now, I think. You know, I also want to be clear so that people don't think that I'm as naive as I may sound. I, I actually believe in partisanship. I like partisan course, yeah. uh, arguing and debate and that sort of stuff. It's just this is going – this is so hyper-partisan. It is so fact-free and so uncivil in so many ways and again, it's playing out in the impeachment thing. I think we all know what the likely outcome is going to be. Impeachment in the House with no Republican votes. Acquittal in the Senate with no uh, uh, Democratic votes for acquittal, but a majority of Republicans there. Uh, that's fine. If it ended there, I could probably say, OK, that's the way. But I really – I don't see the way out of this. When you're when you're rewarded in many ways for embracing an alternative universe, an alternative reality, an alternative set of facts, it seems to me there's no reason to stop embracing them. You know what I mean? And it's already the tone that seems to be breaking down amongst these scholars who are saying uh, that there is enough evidence there for impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors, misdemeanors that the president put his interest first. And then, of course, truly, as you were saying, he's saying uh, there's a paucity of evidence here. So th- these hearings are taking place prematurely. But even you know, to Turley's credit, and again, John Jonathan Turley is the Republic, the choice by the Republicans amongst the four 
law professors, he's at least saying that the call was not perfect. I would take that from the Republicans. I mean, the, the, if you read the – I didn't read the whole prebuttal. I read a summary of the Republicans' prebuttal. And essentially, they're saying there was nothing you know, wrong, nothing to see here. Uh, Donald Trump was concerned about corruption. Of course, the only corruption he – alleged corruption he talked about was corruption that the outcome of which would benefit him. But uh, it, it, they're not even willing to say there was imperfection. It's really, I, I think, really troubling for our country well beyond whatever the Congress does. All right. Well, coming up, could living in a red state mean living in a code blue state? Why are the mortality rates in the U.S. higher in Republican parts of the country? We'll find out from medical ethicist Art Kaplan, who joins us for that and more. That's all next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie today. Massachusetts isn't just the birthplace of democracy. It could also be the birthplace of the anti-vaxxer resistance. In 1905, a smallpox epidemic in Cambridge prompted the city to issue a mandatory vaccination order. When Henning Jacobson refused, he was fined five bucks. He appealed that fine all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled that a state can indeed mandate vaccines and fine people who don't comply. Today, Massachusetts lawmakers are thinking about going one step further, striking the state's existing vaccination law that allows for religious exemptions. If it does, it'll be the seventh state in the country to do that. Join us online to talk about this, why living in a red state could be bad for your health, and other medical headlines is Art Kaplan, artist of Drs. William F. and Virginia Connolly Midi Chair, and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Langone Medical Center. Hello, Art Kaplan. Hello. Hi, Art Kaplan. So, as Jim just mentioned, there is this concern about vaccinations. Measles outbreaks are up everywhere in the world. We'll talk about that in a moment. But especially here in the United States, some people have been able to get around vaccinations, as Jim mentioned, with the religious exemption. Do you see a momentum here for more states trying to do away with that to require vaccinations like for the measles uh, outbreak? I do. And I think Massachusetts would be wise to follow the lead of California and actually New York. We just did it uh, a couple of months ago and get rid of the religious exemption. And people may be thinking, well, don't people have a right to their religious beliefs? Isn't that a fundamental constitutional right? I'm waiting for Jim to dust off his con law book and <laughs> tell us all about <clears throat> the fundamental right to practice your religion. But the fact is, in that case you guys were talking about way back in the ancient days of Mr. Jacobson, the Supreme Court, both in Massachusetts and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, said, look, if you're endangering the public health, then there is a right to restrict religious liberty. So there is a constitutional ruling, if you will, that says if the public health is threatened, you can't uh, just do whatever you want in terms of religious practice. If your religion said, I have to uh, cough without covering my mouth, or I have to drive at 200 miles an hour to get to my religious establishment, things like that. You can't. You can't do it. You can't do it. But here's the real kicker, Jared, that the reality is there's no religion that opposes vaccination. 
I even checked with Christian Science uh, up there, you know, the headquarters in Boston. Um, used to visit it when I was a Cub Scout. I thought it was a religion based on worshiping a map. Have any of you guys been in that building? <laughs> it was a globe. Yes, you worship yes. a globe. Uh, <laughs> the Maparium, yeah. yeah. It's actually yeah. great. Yeah, so that's a, that's my memory of Christian Science. But anyway, I've gotten friendly with them a little bit, and they said, look, we're not against prevention. You go to the dentist, you can get vaccinated. It's a conscience issue. And uh, the rest of the religions were all kind of finished before vaccination appeared, you know, uh, most of their great books and sayings and wise instruction is all finished before a vaccine gets on the scene in the early part of the 20th century. And all major religions that I know of, Catholic Church, Jewish groups, uh, Muslim groups have all said it's good to get vaccinated because you protect your fellow community members. So the idea that there's a religious exemption makes no sense because there's no religion that supports it. You know, I'm sick of talking about this, to be perfectly frank. I cannot believe the vast majority of states still have religious exemptions, particularly in light of the fact the vast majority of Americans support vaccination. So this is just because the anti-vaxxer community is incredibly well organized and is all over the place, despite their mm-hmm. minor numbers. Is that is that not what's that going on? That is true, and better organized because of social media than they ever were. Yeah. So they use that. You get a lot of excuse me. Get a lot of uh, turnout at uh, hearings. They show up. The pro vaccine folks don't. Um, so they sort of get disproportionately heard. But basically, the religious exemption has been. I don't know what to call it, sort of a uh, permissive pathway to say, I don't want to do it. Exactly. I just don't right. want to do it. Right. You know, and, and I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and I was just going to say that you don't have to respect. You know, Jared mentioned a minute ago uh, around the world, and I, I heard this thing last night is uh, Samoa, where the vaccination rate is very low, somewhere in the neighborhood of a third. They are literally shutting down the government so that. Everybody can en masse deal with an attempt to get mass vaccinations for those who aren't? Correct. It is a disaster. We'd be hearing about it more if it wasn't for the impeachment business. It would be driving the news. More than 50 deaths, I believe 49 of them children under four um, from a huge measles outbreak. Anti-vaxxers had targeted Samoa with a lot of nonsense and given out all kinds of uh, sort of over-the-counter remedies to to take care of the measles. They have this massive outbreak. The whole population of the place, I think, is 200,000, so more than 50 deaths is incredible. And basically, they're shutting the whole place down and trying to do, at this point, a mass vaccination campaign. But it's a stark reminder, if you let those vaccine rates dip— and they don't have to dip that much below, say, 90%, start losing what's called herd immunity, meaning it's easier for the virus, measles, say, to jump from one person to another, you can have a disaster. By the way, there is another disaster going on. It's in the poor Democratic Republic of the Congo, which has got enough problems with Ebola, but it has a measles outbreak there that I believe has killed 5,000 people. Oh, boy. So, sadly, I guess we'll continue to do vaccines. You know, revisiting Art Kaplan, something you, Marjorie, and I started last week. We were talking about how amongst uh, uh, developed nations that the United States stands virtually alone in terms of declining 
life expectancy, and then there have been subsequent reports and written about by Paul Krugman in the New York Times that suggest that's not totally true, that in parts of the United States, uh, blue states, not coincidentally, I guess, a life expectancy is keeping pace with the rest of the developed world, but in red states, it is in dramatic decline. Why? It's a combination of things. Um but these are states that have gone for Trump, have gone generally Republican, but then have suffered through big cuts in Medicaid, which means much tougher to get coverage for things like opioid addiction and treatment, um, suffered uh, cuts in Medicaid that have meant very difficult to get better health care out for mental health, which is suicide and so on, big problems in why these numbers are so grim in these red states. And by the way, they weren't leaders to begin with pre-Trump in terms of extent of coverage. Mm -hmm. There's also been a lot of emphasis on reproductive issues, you know, making sure that uh, abortion is restricted, but there isn't any effort in those states to reach out with school meals and things like that, which influence health. The blue states do better. So the way I will see it, I'm going to be blunt here. The uh, southern states primarily are really behind in due to drug addiction, suicide, very poor access to primary care for large numbers of people showing up with uncontrolled diabetes and all the rest of it. They're so angry that they're being harmed so much. They put their faith in Trump, who seemed to be their, you know, their guy, their advocate. But all he's done is cut services to them and uh, putting them in a situation where things are getting worse and worse. And I have to say, I don't think the Democrats on the blue side have picked up on this enough. It's like, this is what we're going to do for you guys. We haven't forgotten uh, people in uh, the South and, and what's happening to uh, young people there in terms of premature death and so on and rotten public health statistics. When you talk about Medicare for all or whatever health reform ideas different Democrats want to promote, they should be talking about specifically those states and those voters. Well, they should be, forget Medicare for all, even if you're an Affordable Care Act person, as you touched upon a second ago, the, the, the failure of some Republican governors to accept free Medicaid, uh, free uh, federal money for Medicaid expansion is basically saying, uh, screw you, to poor people and their health in these states long before this life expectancy thing. It is, it's, it's unconscionable. And by the way, let's be blunt about something else. This is not just a poor black person problem in the South. It's a poor white person yeah, problem in the South. Their rates are uh, tipping uh, in an awful direction in terms of premature death. And so again, I mean, we're all here trying to give it, uh, political advice, but you basically have to say you're looking in the wrong direction. If you want help for your health, do not look to the Republicans. Don't look to their governors. Don't look to Trump. They don't care. They're making the cuts. You need somebody to throw that safety net out there. We're talking to Art Kaplan, medical ethicist. Uh, our, we also were talking about the beginning of the show. Uh, there's this fascinating story in the New York Times about the class of 2000 and one particular community in Ohio, which has just been ravaged by the opioid epidemic. Tell us how this is emblematic of, of what this is doing to our communities in this country. When you when you look at I mean the, the vast array of these individual stories, how it, how it has affected so many different members of the class, all individual characters is really pretty profound. 
Yeah, they studied a little. I forgot the name of the town. It was a little rural Miniford. town in Ohio. Miniford. Miniford. Yeah. And tracked the uh, graduating class out and uh, basically saw, I, th- I'm, I think I'm going to get this number right, 32% with opioid addiction problems and an inordinate amount of deaths. We've talked about this in the past. I know the opioid problem is out of control because we're seeing more and more organ donors who die from opioid overdoses, and they are basically becoming the key source of uh, cadaver organs. They're young people dying, uh, you know, of overdose, and and the New York Times story just reinforces it. I urge everybody to take a look, Google it up. It's so awful, so sad, so tragic. So these are, you know, the classic folks in rural Ohio who might be red state voters, and they're basically ravaged by this opioid epidemic, and and no one uh, has figured out any way to reach out and help them or even identified the problem in time to really do anything about it. It's taken us way too long to get back on top of the uh, harm that's been caused by the opioid epidemic. And I know states are starting to win. You've got your attorney general chasing around the uh, opioid manufacturers there. What's her name, Coakley? Uh, no, former is Coakley. She was doing it too, but Demora Healy is really uh, going oh, big Healy, time. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. And um, other states' attorney generals are doing it too, and that's great, but it's coming late. This whole generation has been lost, and you can sort of see just how bad it's been in stark terms with real pictures and real names out of that story. Well, just the, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jared. I was going to say, you, you just mentioned the generational part, and to me that was the most striking in, in that this is – we're talking about the class of 2000, so that was 19 years ago. This is deeply embedded now. This isn't just a, a problem that's sweeping through a community. You see the, this as this article documents being passed from generation to generation. Yep. So when you get the addiction, literally, you can give birth to kids that have addiction issues from birth. How sad is that? And then, uh, you know, you grow up in a fractured family. Both the parents are using. It tends to be something that the kids, their kids see. They pick up on it. So it has cross-generational impact in a way that the story really makes clear. You know, a couple more things on this for a second. One statistic that really stood out for me amongst many in this story in the New York Times. In 2010, I don't know how to pronounce the county, S-C-I-O-T-O County, which is where Miniford is, would lead Ohio in the number of opioid prescriptions with enough to give 123 pills to every single resident in the county, which is just otherworldly. And you mentioned Healy. Uh, I, I will never forget the quote from one of the emails that she pulled out from uh, Richard Sackler, Dr. Richard Sackler mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Purdue, uh, the maker of OxyContin, a, a few months ago. We have to hammer on the abusers in every way possible. This is Sackler writing an email to his people. They are the culprits. The abusers are. They are the culprits in the problem. They are reckless criminals. And just this morning, talk about good timing, STAT, which is a piece of the Boston Globe, which has done brilliant work on health technology, that sort of stuff. They, through their effort for, I think it's four years now, to get disclosure from uh, Purdue and the Sacklers, uh, once again, and other emails from Richard Sackler writing uh, that uh, those who were suggesting, some of these pharmacy benefit managers, that warned that there was an abuse problem, uh, he just says, we have to obliterate 
the addiction objection. I mean, these people mm-hmm. so obviously belong in jail. I know there are mm-hmm. laws and you got – these are criminals who essentially have – they have murdered. There is no question they had knowledge of the potential impact and the likely impact of their product and that they lied about it. And there are dead bodies strewn across this whole country because of this family. I mean, it's just – it is unbelievable. And they basically tried to sell uh, the bad apple idea. You know, they're abusers and yep. we got to blame everything on them. And that's – well, if a third of your town is basically addicted and dying, that that, that gets beyond the bad apple bad bunch uh, kind of uh, strategy. Listen, I'm even going to say, I remember back in those, uh, maybe it was late 90s, early 2000s, I, I didn't worry too much about uh, things like OxyContin. I'd heard that, you know, it was pretty safe drug and there were a lot of people in pain and we had to take pain more seriously. I That whole message permeated out everywhere. Um, you know, it was the lying and the dissembling and the drive to just make money uh, no matter what the heck happened, is unbelievable. Is indeed. Uh, we're talking to Art Kaplan. So our, something some, I think a lot of people thought was a lot safer than opioids, CBD, 64 million Americans, I know, isn't it, have tried CBD at some point for any variety of and, and ailments. The, and, the, and the rest of them are in line. But right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but there does seem to be some cause for concern now. What are we, what are we learning? So we're learning that if you have the right marketing – and you talk about uh, a product like uh, marijuana or cannabis oils or whatever, it's almost, I don't want to say it's a replay of the opioids because I'm sure the dangers are not like that, but we don't know what these things actually do. So they basically sailed along under the radar because they're not prescription drugs. How many stores do you go by on the way home that are selling this stuff where I'm sitting literally today in Manhattan at NYU? There's a van that I went by that's out in the street, a big, uh, you know, uh, uh, 18-wheeler that says, come on in and buy CBD products. Um, people are swallowing the oils. We have no idea what the health impact is of any of this stuff, either good or bad. Um, it sounds great. I guess people have this association that maybe it'll relieve pain or do something like that, although that's not the point of these things whether it damages your liver or causes other kinds of harm or what dose would be appropriate to take. It's part of America's endless fascination with alternative, herbal, goopy interventions. And the fact that tens of millions of us are doing this on the side, if you will, to treat any number of medical problems, I don't know, it shows to me that we got a regulatory weakness here. I have to say, of all the people in the health community, the person who I've heard most relentlessly who's not a reactionary anti-drug zealot uh, talk about how much we need more testing of the psychoactive side of uh, cannabis and Mm -hmm. the CBD, as you. And And the more we hear, the more it's clear that's the case. But one thing I'm not clear about, when they're talking about 64 million Americans have tried CBD, and by the way, Marjorie amongst them, she's talked on the air about how she had a bad mm-hmm. knee or a bad something, and she thought it actually it worked. What I'm not clear about is it is, is is the potential danger if you ingest it only or if you ingest it or even use it on your body. Do you know? Well, well I don't know about the skin creams. I don't know. Okay. Uh, ingestion, definitely. Ingestion. But remember, people are smoking it too, right? Mm-hmm. They, yeah. they put it in their vape. 
and they uh, get the oils going and inhale it and what that does to your lungs, who knows. Again, I'm not saying there's nothing going on with this stuff. I'm just saying we don't know what the heck is going on and we got whatever it is, 64 million of us using it a lot and the rest are lying and they're probably doing it too. And, you know, we have no studies. We don't know the doses. We just have shops opening up and trucks rolling around and it's a huge business, probably not culpable or liable in any way if there is harm because, you know, they're basically saying, I don't know, it's just a food. We didn't tell you to do it, blah, 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 blah. So, it seems to me the FDA, if they don't have the authority to be watching all this stuff, they ought to get it. Well, well if, they, if the FDA doesn't do the research, Rob Gronkowski can do the research. So <laughs> one or the other, I think we'll be fine in short order. I'm sorry there, Jared. Uh, and that was my question. I, I guess I just assumed that if it's out there on the marketplace and it's got this nice packaging on it or these colorful trucks that roll by you, that they are regulated to some degree. But that's not necessarily the case. No, no. Pretty light regulation when you're a food or a uh, non-prescription drug, non uh, – yeah, it, it, the short answer is very light regulation. You know, making foods, organic foods, for example, if I claim organic, nobody really comes out and checks to see what the heck I'm doing or whether it's true or whatever as the occasional – one in a zillion inspection, but that whole world is run by the market. It's it's Milton Friedman's dream, uh, buyer beware. Something else for Marjorie to worry about. So before you go, uh, there's a bill in the Pennsylvania. We talk a lot to you, Art, and even when you're not here, about how, yeah, uh, uh, there's a constitutional right to an abortion. You talk about me when I'm not there? <laughs> we oh do. Well, we do, actually. That's what we spend most <laughs> of our time doing, on and off air. But uh, uh, the ability to access the constitutional right and uh, uh, having it are obviously two different Animals. There's a bill now in a Pennsylvania legislature. I've never heard this one before. That essentially wants the mandate that there be funerals and death certificates for fertilized eggs beyond what is the obvious agenda here. How do you even know uh, uh, about what happened to most fertilized eggs to begin with? Well, I can tell you what happens to a large number of them, probably 45 to 50 percent spontaneously abort within the first few days after right. they are fertilized. And if you were going to move in the uh, direction of funerals there, you'd have a lot of funerals. And how you'd figure out that that had even happened, who knows? That legislation is beyond cruel and beyond ridiculous. Many people would be psychologically devastated if they had to do that. They, whatever their belief is about the moral status of a fertilized egg, a number of them don't implant, so I don't consider them embryos. You'd be having a funeral for a potential embryo. So obviously, um, the ideology here is completely out of sync with the science. And I'm going to say the ideology is completely out of sync with what's uh, in the best interests of women. Um, I think uh, spontaneous abortion, miscarriage, these are horrible things, and they have to be dealt with, you know, in each person's own way. I don't really need the state telling me how to deal with it. You know, yeah, a quick an aside before you go. I had the last night I had on the 50th anniversary of Our Bodies Ourselves, I had oh, Judy yeah. Norsegian on, who's one of the yeah. handful yeah. of women, the dozen women who pulled this thing together. And, you know, when you describe what the world was like for women and health and their sexuality, uh, in 1970, three years before Roe v. Wade, and then you fast forward 49 years, and you realize 
what's under attack from abortion rights to to the Trump administration deleting women's health information and contra. I mean, it's just it is un. And she said it too. It's unbelievable. Fifty years after the fact, yeah, how far we have fallen in some ways. So, in any case, uh, Art, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always, and we'll be talking about you behind your back all week. <laughs> Thanks so much. Very good. See ya. I only ever hear them say nice things, Art. Well, there you go. There you go. Art Kaplan joins us every week. He's the doctor's William F. and Virginia Connolly MIDI chair and director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Langone Medical Center. Art Kaplan, great to speak with you. Coming up, House Democrats have concluded that President Trump abused the power of his office. Is this enough to make the case for impeachment? National security expert Juliet Kayam joins us for that and more. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. the House Intelligence Committee has wrapped up its fact-finding mission. It's on to Act 2 with the House Judiciary Committee deciding on how to proceed. National security expert Juliet Kayyem joins us for day one of the Judiciary impeachment hearing and more. And apologies to the late Mayor Tominina. The cat is still king in the city of Boston and beyond. We talked to the Globe's Andrew Ryan about their investigation into our traffic hell, which nearly throws our government officials under the bus, except the problem is, turns out we don't have enough of those either. I'm Jared Boning for Marjorie Egan. If any of you have loser's remorse that Boston failed to win the Amazon HQ sweepstakes, Nancy Kane might have you rejoicing instead. She joins us for an update on how the tech giant's reach is affecting the communities it has moved into. Then we're a little bit country, a little bit Rachmaninoff with our quarterly concert roundtable. That's all next on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Marjorie has a day off. She'll be back tomorrow. Jared Bowen, Executive Arts Editor at GBH, is sitting in. Hello again, Jared. Hello again. Here with us in Studio 3 to take on the latest national security headlines is Juliet Kayyem. Juliet's an analyst for CNN, former Assistant Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School. Hello, Juliet. Hello. Well, hey, I know, Jerry. Hi. How I know what you? you've been doing this morning. Yes. I was supposed to be on a flight and it got canceled. So instead, the alternative was uh, is is watching the hearings, actually listening to them. I was uh, listening to them on the on a different radio station. Um, but um, uh, and uh, so and enjoying them. So you've heard these constitutional yes. experts, one with whom you have a personal connection. Your own. Well, I know two of them personally. I know Noah Feldman very well because he's local and a friend of mine. And then Pam Carlin was my professor. So she's the one who everyone's talking about now because uh, she basically, you know, everyone was sort of making fun of this panel and, oh, it's law professors and whatever. But um, I have a couple thoughts. But the first is Pam Carlin sort of addressed that directly at the beginning of the suggestion by one of the Republican congressmen, 
Doug Collins. Doug Collins that um, that you know this was just an academic exercise, and she essentially said this is the idea that I would sit before you and not have taken in the facts of this case and read the testimony of the House Intel Committee. She's like, I just find offensive, and Here's she just she went, said. okay, good. You she goes it. right at Doug Collins, who's the ranking minority member of the committee from Georgia. Here it is. And here, Mr. Collins, I would like to say to you, sir, that I read transcripts of every one of the witnesses who appeared in the live hearing because I would not speak about these things without reviewing the facts. So I'm insulted by the suggestion that as a law professor, I don't care about those facts. But everything I read on those occasions tells me that when President Trump invited, indeed demanded foreign involvement in our upcoming election, he struck at the very heart of what makes this a republic to which we pledge allegiance. I think that's the part. I think that's where she said, by the way, I was reading all through Thanksgiving. It was so bad that we had to order a turkey through the mail. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) A cooked turkey. She, uh, I mean, she really did take on this idea that this is just an academic enterprise. And so how I'm looking at it right now, obviously, the uh, the questioning of um, uh, from the majority from the House is going on right now. Um, There's substance, of course, three of the four uh, um, of them, of the law professors, uh, essentially are saying if if this this is clearly impeachable, and if this is not impeachable, uh, we either live in a dictatorship or a monarchy. Like in other words, there's just no options here. Uh, Jonathan Turley is uh, is a Republican uh, witness, uh, made it clear that he had not voted for Donald Trump. He obviously, as people are noting online, was for the impeachment of Bill Clinton. To me, that just seems inconceivable. You know, you can, uh, as a as someone legally looking at this, forget the politics of it, that you could find impeachable offenses with Bill Clinton and not with Donald Trump. I mean, that just seems. But anyway, the, the thing that I want um, that I find interesting about this is and I said this on the show a couple or at least last week, I, I thought the House Intel Committee hearings were important. They were heroic. We, you know, there were heroes made out of them, Fiona Hill, the ambassador, others. Um, But I was frustrated because they were about Ukraine and Ukraine's fledgling democracy and the beauty of Ukraine and its people as they struggle to break free of Russian influence and the war with Russia. And there was nothing about the United States. And as I've been saying on air for the what last. What do you mean nothing about the United States? It wasn't that this was an this was an assault on the American public and our voting independence, and none of them spoke to that. And I think, and it sort of frustrates me um, in many ways, um, uh, but also because if you look at what Donald Trump did through the lens of you. Of you, of the national security interests of Ukraine for the United States, you're forgetting a key piece of what was going on, which was, of course, election interference again in 2020. Um, and so, uh, in some ways, it, it, I'm sort of mentioning a lot of different things in this answer. But of course, Adam Schiff's committee has now issued a report. Adam Schiff, I thought, was successful in bringing the narrative back to election independence. He, he, you know, Ukraine is sort of a, the history of Ukraine is sort of a small part of, of, of that narrative. Uh, because honestly, Donald Trump can punch down to any country, Ukraine, Lebanon, you pick it, Brazil, you know, there, there's no dearth of countries that he can abuse um, because he's the president of the United States. That really the affront is to the American public. And so what's, why I'm animated about today is, um, 
is it's about our interest as citizens in having a president who does not welcome foreign interference in our elections nor seek favor, um, uh, uh, personal favor by essentially blackmailing other countries. I will say you, you I don't know if you mentioned this, but Pam Carlin had a great analogy in her opening where she says, imagine that uh, you're, you know, in Louisiana. She picks one of the states where one of the Republicans is from. Uh, you've been devastated by a hurricane. Uh, Congress has authorized funds to help you with the disaster relief. Uh, the president, you're the you're the uh, the governor. You're running against the governor. Um, and the president calls the or, or the governor or something like this and calls the governor and says, oh, I, I know you want those funds. I know you want those funds. But you know, I really need you to find out dirt about X, Y, or Z. No rational person would view that as acceptable behavior or anything short of a quid pro quo or a bribe. So I thought her bringing it back to the United States um, is really important because I think the American public needs to know this is not a national security issue. It's a it's a it's a, a democracy issue. Yeah, I want to get back to some new things in a minute. Yeah. We learned in when the intelligence, the Democratic uh, yeah. version of the intelligence committee was released last night. But I'm going to sound so petty after your grand statement just now. <laughs> I think the Democrats, in a small way, got outflanked again this morning. I'll tell you why. Right. You mentioned in passing uh, Turley, who does not believe this is an impeachable yeah. offense, opening by saying, which I think is powerful, I'm not a Trump supporter. Right. I voted for Obama. I voted for Clinton, et cetera. If I was the Democrat and uh, I was Jerry Nadler and I was about to pick three law professors, I would have picked at least one of the who was not an yeah. ideological yeah. critic yeah. of uh, Donald Trump. Right. I'd pick – there have got to be a lot there of conservative are a lot. In law fact, professors. There are, it's very interesting you say that. I, I had not thought about that. But a couple of them are piping up on Twitter and saying, you know, to the extent that Republicans have – I don't know if Turley's a Democrat. He said he did not vote for Trump. It may have been that he voted for his dog. Like, it, that doesn't yeah, make whatever him – whatever it is. He right. vote, but he did vote – no, he right. said he, – but he said in the past he's voted for Democrats, right. Obama and Clinton. Right. But I think that um, – uh, I think they would have been smart to do that. I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, they're going to necessarily end the uh, uh, this hearing. I think the takeaway from this hearing, I think Pam Carlin will be the breakout star. I agree. In her, in her. But you do that, not agree that if there was somebody there I agree. who said, no, I agree with that. "I'm in the Federalist Society." Right. Uh, I love some of the judicial for picks. Justice Scalia. Exactly. Right, that, and there it, are people like that. Would that would be memorable. I mean, yeah. One yeah. clerk for Souter, another for Blackman, not to say that yeah. you know, that they're partisan, of course, but they're appointed by Republicans, so maybe that was no, part no, of no. how Those, they're... I mean, Souter is hard to I yeah, know, I know. But qualify, Republicans yeah. ended up hating him yeah, because yeah. he wasn't so, Republican enough. I, no, I agree with you. And, and those people are out there. Those are the, you know, that is the, the George the legal, Conway's right, of The legal community that... Uh, or, or the Republican scholars uh, who are for impeachment uh, form a huge part of the Never Trumper yes. uh, yeah. initiative, and I think I think you're probably right on that. But I, I mean, I'm not I, saying it's the biggest right. thing. I'm saying it would have stuck in the minds of people who are still tuned. Can, right. I, can we get to the uh, the report from last yes, night? Yeah. We don't have to revisit the conclusions that were pretty obvious from the testimony. But talk for a minute about what we learned about the ranking minority member, Devin oh Nunez, of the Intelligence uh, uh, Committee, Rudy Giuliani. What, what did we learn from phone I, logs? I think, well, multiple phone logs. I think just the takeaway is Nunez was, is both juror and 
co-defendant. And so that's like sort of a weird place to be. And one would never imagine that you uh, that that is logical. And it's not. Uh, Nunesat before has has had such a uh, tortured uh, relationship with the um, idea of intelligence from the beginning. Uh, he has been recused. He was recused from the Russian investigation. There's a famous story of him, you know, jumping in a car and going to the White House because something happened. He's um, he's uh, he's a uh, um, it is such a shame that he is the head of that committee because that committee was known for its nonpartisanship in in fundamental ways in the national security uh, realm and well, had Senate been treated. Still uh, operating in many yeah, ways. Yeah, but Burr is yeah Burr yeah. is being a little bit odd lately. But yeah, definitely. No, I think Burr and Warner, uh, the Republican and Democrat, are good in that sense. So Noonan just Noonan is what we've discovered, um, and Schiff sort of hinted at this during some of the uh, testimony. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, is he is actually a key player in the Giuliani Ukraine OMB nexus through these phone calls and through his meetings with some of these Ukrainian. Oh, God, I mean, I can't believe these people are in our life. Like the Ukrainian henchmen, Lev. yeah, Lev, the you know, indicted, uh, indicted, the indicted guys, and yeah. never says anything nor recuses himself from the investigation. Nunes is um, as someone on, on to a legal scholar, which I'll only quote from because I don't know. As I said, you know, it's just clear that. Um, you know, if Nunes does not have his own lawyer, he needs to get one because if you have that kind of relationship uh, with these guys under indictment, where essentially, it, you know, if you're going to read in between the lines, you know, basically Giuliani uh, and the Ukrainian uh, uh, businessmen and Nunes are all pushing OMB uh, to 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 satisfy the quid pro quo. Well, taking a page out of the, what the GOP is saying, is this moving too quickly? Should this be slowed down? Should the Democrats have known about Nunez even before the Intelligence Committee convened? Uh, well, I, th- I don't know. I mean, I think that it probably takes the formality of a uh, hearing to have gotten some of that information or to get people sufficiently scared to offer up that investigate uh, that information. I mean, clearly that information came from someone that they testified with. I don't think it's noted in the report or someone who testified before them from the OMB world. We know that there were a couple people who did that. I, I've definitely because um, I'm I, I you know, I impeachment is both a legal and a political conclusion. I'm definitely of the school that the hearings, fast uh, or slow, are a benefit in and of themselves. Because if you focus solely on 2020, let's just put this in perspective here. Mueller comes out with his report, and the next day, Donald Trump does a quid pro quo with Ukraine. Uh, that means this is a man who does not see foreign inter, uh, influence in an election as bad and a person who will use his power uh, to benefit himself personally. So if you're going to try to stop that, there are multiple means to stop that. One is impeachment. One is criminal indictments against his his uh, his peers. And another is an election, but the election may be tainted because of what the president is doing. But another way to do it is to have open public hearings in which these guys are being named and shamed in ways of which they never imagined, which deters them from doing it again in 2020. So think about someone like Rick Perry. He's now in no position to do this again, right? Uh, Pence, who wants to be president, is unlikely to get his hand dirty again. So I would view impeachment as one of five or six options available, the most draconian, I guess, available to protect the 2020 election. And that's why I have uh, been a late convert 
to these hearings, and I was late, I, but I now am totally on board. I, if you want to deter these guys from using their power, from doing it again, uh, this is one of the ways that you do it, regardless of what happens on the other end. Regardless of whether or not it ends up moving more people in the direction of the guy who's being investigated. Donald it might. Trump, I yeah. mean, you know, at this stage, gaming Trump supporters, like we're bad at it, uh, but no, also, uh, but also, you know, it, it also galvanizes people. Um, uh, to recognize just the corruption at the core of this family. I mean, it's, it's just a freaking entire family. I mean, you just so, – it's like where do people like that come from? But I guess I know. So at the same time – talk about – Marjorie was saying the other day, it, it, literally, you need five heads to follow everything that's yeah. going on. While this is happening in Washington, in uh, Madrid, we talked to Bill McKibben yesterday. Yeah. There is obviously COP25 where the United States has sent very, very low level right. participants. And obviously we're not a participant in a serious way after having given notice of withdrawal uh, recently from the Paris Climate Accord. And in London, yes. the president is there for NATO. Was there. And right. He said, <laughs> no press conference. I'm going home. And the major takeaway, it appears, is uh, a bunch of foreign leaders, including uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, talking at an event and overheard yeah. uh, ally, leaders of allied nations mocking uh, the president of the United States and talking about how his staff, I think the word was, was agog yeah. uh, during one of the press conferences. I mean, how far Have we gone? the United States has fallen yeah, in terms is... of the world of our allies. Right. This is a, such a I'm, – I'm of multiple minds on this um, – I'm I'm mad at Justin Trudeau and the, I mean I, I I you know it's 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 funny it's you know it's it's what we all think about Trump we're we're sort I mean you're probably sort of glad that these other leaders recognize what we recognize in Donald Trump that he's an embarrassment to the United States abroad it confirms what we know um, and it also shows Trump's weakness internationally I mean I do think the 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 attitude towards Donald Trump two years ago at NATO as compared to now um, is there, they just don't care, right? This is a man who's, you know, if he wins in 2020, then maybe it matters, but they can buy out a year. They can definitely buy out a year. I mean, budgeting for NATO is three or four years in advance. Nothing this guy does is going to be permanent to NATO at this stage. I just, but I'm mad that, you know, Justin Trudeau has been prime minister for a long time. That was a public place. It, it's just, it was such a, it was unforced error um, because you know that the president takes everything personally. And I just, on a substantive issue, I do worry that this is just be given how uh, sensitive the president is. I do worry that this is going to impact a really important piece of legislation, which ought to be done this month, which is NAFTA 2 or the USMCA. Um, it is, uh, I think it was, it's going to be an important piece of legislation that pro- that has bipartisan support. I would not put it past Donald Trump to veto it just to spite Justin Trudeau. But it's one of his priorities. I mean, it seems to me, oh, we were com- having this discussion know, a couple but, of days I mean, ago. He only has priority- it seems to me that if the Democrats do proceed with this, that Donald Trump gets a lot of play come election yeah. time because one of the Democrats' themes is what has he done on all the pledges he made right. you in 2016 from a tax cut to the middle class to a wall paid for by Mexico? Well, a lot of workers in this country care, as you know, yeah. care deeply about a reform NAFTA. And if the Democrats give it to him, I, I, I mean, I, he, he may be upset with Justin Trudeau, but I'm guessing he gets him at, at him elsewhere in other ways because this is a, a real victory yeah. for this president. I, Would it I, not be? I agree, but I don't. You've you've encountered. I mean, you've been watching him for three years. I mean, the idea that he's going to hand. I mean, he doesn't. 
he doesn't take the long view, right? If people criticize Obama for for being, you know, t- you know, for believing too, too long view, right? Like <laughs> you know, for believing too wholeheartedly that the course of American history uh, arcs towards justice. Uh, um, uh, you know, I just you know, Donald Trump is is just pure response, um, and jumping on a plane uh, to return home is one of them. And before, which is move, what he did. Before we move off, what's happening in Europe? Boris Johnson doesn't want the president anywhere near where didn't right. want it over the last 24 hours so as not to influence the election there, given that a lot of Britons don't like the president. Angela Merkel is a lame duck at this point, so she's not really in the picture in the last 24 hours. But Emmanuel Macron is in a very big way. Yeah. What's the significance of him standing up to the president, almost slapping him down and saying, take this seriously? For what Emmanuel Macron represents politically, I think I think it's uh, a terror. I mean, I think it's, it was the lost story of yesterday because remember the morning opened up with that, and it shows two things. One is that uh, look, these world leaders have domestic constituencies. They don't, and Trump is not one of them. In most instances, uh, Trump is despised, except for in Russia, um, and uh, and so uh, him. Playing to his domestic politics is key, especially on areas uh, around uh, NATO, the environment, um, and ISIS, uh, which is what the direct agreement was about. And just to remind people, what Trump basically said uh, to Macron is, uh, you know, well, these ISIS, we can release ISIS fighters on the streets of Paris. I mean, who says that after what Paris went through? The second thing I say is this is consistent with what I was um uh, talking to Jim about earlier is they're 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 over him. I mean, yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard the um, history of The Apprentice, the show. Um, it was wildly popular in its first three years, and then plummeted dramatically because people sort of tired of Trump and that bullying and that whole whole attitude. And you kind of wonder whether we're just living in a really bad, uh, you know, series of The Apprentice 2, where, you know, we're in the fourth, uh, you know, fourth year and we sort of all, we being, you know, world leaders have lost interest. They're buying out their time now. We we will have nothing significant of international uh, uh, making, except for possibly NAFTA 2, then uh, in the next nine years. If you're a world leader... And his popularity is eighty or unpopularity is eighty or ninety percent in your country. You're what's ten months? Well, you think, but China would cut a deal with him if he was willing to cut a deal with China. Despite that comment two days ago about maybe it's better to wait till after the election. But you know, everybody's trying to analyze what his point was. You know, my thought is, I think he thinks he's close to a deal and wants to lower expectations yeah, so he can possibly. come out and go, aha. Which would be yet another. Yeah, he created the problem, but then he's solving the problem yeah. would be a big. Yeah, that's deal. what that's his M.O. Can we uh, end locally? Yeah. Uh, we had some other international Thank things. You. We don't have time for them. You actually, we were talking to Art Kaplan a few minutes ago, as we do almost every time our medical ethicist is on, about yet another one, two, three vaccine stories from Samoa. The actually, Samoa the Massachusetts story, State House. You were at the State House for the I year? testified. Why were you there? Uh, so I. Uh, Security mom. So, well, the one is that, but I, I view. Um, as you know, Homeland Security is minimizing risk to our communities, and in particular our kids, security mom. Um, I am the faculty chair of a, of a global health and uh, security program, which uh, looks at the challenges of uh, – looks at the nexus between global health challenges and national security, because I think there are. And I am a firm believer uh, that community resiliency is based on 
uh, eliminating the risks that our children face. A success story with vaccines, if I've ever heard one. Our children face guns and opiates and ISIS and climate change and all these horrors that we are, you know, basically handing to them. Uh, here, guess what? They don't. Uh, they don't face uh, the threat of an, uh, you know, unmanageable uh, 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 outbreak of some disease. And uh, and the these people, I'm, you know, you know, I'm harsh on this. I've been on this show before. You know, public health people are really nice about educating anti-vaxxers or whatever. I come from the public safety area. Um, I think these people should be fined. Germany is starting to fine them. I think these doctors who are giving medical waivers with no medical assessment uh, should uh, should be uh, uh, criminally or civilly liable. I think these religious exceptions should go away. Um, you, Which you, is what the hearing was about. Yes, yeah, right? the, there's different pieces of the legislation. This was actually the more benign side. It didn't have to do with the religious exception. Oh, I it did. Yeah, no, it had to do with literally monitoring and uh, getting information. I have to say, um, I walked into the room. I knew that the anti-vax folks were organized. It was a snowy day. It had been postponed. It was supposed to be in the morning, but it had been postponed at two. I was going to talk about it as a homeland security issue. There were 400 people um, there. They were all white. Uh, they were mostly women. And some of them brought their unvaccinated children, of which then I started to get paranoid because I was like, this is a threat to me. I am so tired of these people picking their own science and picking their own religions and um, and deciding somehow that magically uh, that we got rid of polio and measles and mumps and all these things that killed our children before. And it is, I believe it's the most self-centered group of people I could ever imagine in my life. I kept it together during the hearing. I was booed and heckled and all that stuff. Uh, these are not low-information women. If you saw the room, I posted a picture. These are white women. That I'm telling you now, the entire room was white women from the suburbs who brought their children in because of their Robert Kennedy Jr. theories of science. We have eliminated the risk to our children in this country. Um, everyone should, unless there is a medical reason because uh, because. Um, that child cannot, a specific child cannot get vaccinated, needs to get vaccinated to protect the children um, and the infirm and the elderly who cannot. If you think I sound mad now, you should have read my testimony. I was I was done. I'm done. I'm done with these people. Amen. Thank you. We're done with you. But I know. only because time's up, <laughs> not because of the content of your speech. Um, I will say... Uh, I did say this line uh, that got booze, but I am going to say it here, which is, um, I love my children. I believe, I put the believe in quotes that anti-vaxxers love their children. What I know for sure is I love their children more than they love any other um, and mine. Uh, they are a risk to our communities and to our security. So thank you. Yes, Good to you, see you. I'm going to make a lot of friends today. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, I think you actually will. Well, actually. I know that we need a pro-vaccine. It's, it's like we need like a smart, not even smart people, like reality-based constituency. Well, you know who we have? The, the courageous relatives of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who did that op-ed last year. I know. Criticizing their cousin. You know he's involved some... with Samoa. I do know. Oh, I do oh know. you guys did that. I know. Okay, bye. Goodbye. I was see supposed ya. to pace the rage, but you got me on vaccines. <laughs> I'll see you later. You can unpace. 
face it every now and again. Julia Kayam joins us every week. She's an analyst for CNN, former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School. Coming up 50 years ago, we put a man on the moon, but today we can't even get a man to work, or at least on time. A new Boston Globe Spotlight investigation looks into how the Massachusetts transportation system is failing to deliver. That's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Marjorie's off today. She's back tomorrow. Jared Bowen's sitting in for. In the Boston metro region, there are 300,000 more cars and trucks on the road than there were five years ago. Add to that 74,000 new jobs. Commuters are too afraid to ride their bikes and a public transportation system that chronically breaks down. These are just some of the findings from the Boston Globe Spotlight investigation. It's called Seeing Red. Now they'll need to do an investigation as to why we all continue to live here. Joining us to talk about this three-part series is Andrew Ryan. Andrew is an investigative reporter for the Boston Globe. Congratulations on the series, Andrew. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, congratulations. So I, we have a zillion questions for you about what is happening in transportation. But first, if if anybody lives around here in the Boston area, we know we have listeners all across the state, but this is a this is a conversation we've been having. But what did you all at the Globe see that you decided, wait a minute, this has changed? This deserves spotlight treatment. I mean, I think this is basically we live here, too. Right. And I mean, talking to our neighbors, talking to our sources, just experiencing ourselves, we can all feel it that it kept getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, so we I mean, I think of even like Saturday mornings when I when I take my son to soccer, I'm, you know, hitting traffic jams like so you could just probably feel it in places. Um, And so I think that was a big driver of it, just that it was something that we heard from both readers and experienced ourselves. And so we wanted to, one, uh, you know, double check to see that it wasn't our imagination. And as you mentioned, that 300,000 figure in the last five years alone, I mean, it's real. There are just more cars and trucks out there and there aren't, there isn't more road and more than likely there's not going to be more road. So it's just a basic math problem. But two, we also wanted to understand what, if anything, potentially could be done and, and look at what has been, you know, done in other places. You know, uh, first of all, before we get to what hasn't been done, and then we can talk about what should be done. How'd you get here today? Uh, it, it actually uh, took some doing. So I live in South Boston uh, and I normally would take the number nine bus to the red line. For some reason, it was a 40 minute wait for the number nine bus. So I walked a mile to the red line, took that to Central Square and then it was another half hour wait for a different bus, for the best bus. So I took a different bus that dropped me off about another half mile away. So it was, uh, I mean, I think I could have made it, you know, basically to Maine by the time <laughs> I got here, essentially. You know, Marjorie's not here today. Marjorie's favorite story, I don't know if you had anything to do with this, was the story, well, actually, it was, it was college kids. It was just covered by the Globe. Remember the, the story you guys did a couple of years ago about, I think it was BC college kids, I'm not sure, re- running into Boston, racing the green line, and, and we all know what the outcome was. So, Andrew Ryan, it, this is hard to do because it was obviously thousands and thousands of words and months and months of research. What were the handful of things that you and your colleagues found were at the core of the problem, the causes? What have we not done? What have we not attended to that's causing this chaos? I mean, 
like you said, there's a lot of things. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, basically no urban area has completely figured this out first off, that this is, I mean, it's a bad problem here, but, you know, I mean, basically more and more people are living in cities and there's a downside to that, uh, which is this congestion that we all feel. I mean, some of the more surprising things, I think, uh, and this number is off the top of my head, but when we looked at the number of cab rides in 2012 and compared that to the number of Uber Uber rides uh, in the most recent year, it was an extraordinary explosion. It was, I mean, it, it went up multiples. And it just underscores that because of, you know, just what we started calling convenience culture. You know, I mean, we all love the apps on our phone. And, you know, this time of year, things like Amazon and Uber can make life a lot easier but they exacerbate what's already a bad problem. What you did know? you, did you, was the number you had roughly 20% of the cars on the road, was that what it was at any one time? Or ride shares, was that what it was? Or am I uh, confusing a couple of things? That that may have been at during certain stretches of road, during certain hours. Uh, I mean, one of the, uh, we worked with, with a firm that's uh, called Streetlight that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, kind of get, got at this data in an interesting way. I mean, that is one of the trouble things is a lot of these companies, Uber, et cetera, are very protective of their data. Uh, you know, they do share it with the state, but then, you know, we had uh, done records requests to the state and they wouldn't share the raw data with us. So it, it can be difficult to track that exactly. So can you, to, to organize this for people who are in their cars, their offices, home, wherever they are, when you mention an issue, let's talk about what the potential fix might be. Is this solution to that to limit the number of ride shares? Is it to raise the fees on ride shares, which at least some elected officials are proposing? What's the fix on that front? I mean, it could be both of those things. I mean, you know, technology is an amazing thing and it could help in some ways. I mean, I know that there's some folks that suggest, that, let's say if you're if you're taking a, uh, an Uber or a Lyft, um, basically that goes along the, the path of the red line, that you pay a premium for that. Like there are other kind of uh, creative things that could be done. I mean, I know in New York, they put a hold uh, new uh, rideshare licenses uh, in London, they just you know basically uh, canceled or, or wouldn't renew Uber's license. Um, you know, in London, they also just recently made uh, I think it was in April of this year. They Wait, made... what does that mean? Go go back for a second. To so, cancel or renew their license? And this is something that just happened last week uh, and is kind of happening in real time. That and I think it was because they found some people who weren't using their real identities uh, when they signed up. So they basically said, "We're not going to renew your license." Uh, meaning the the company, so that uh, that uh, as a as a system, that they said we're not going to like license you to to operate on the road, and that that's still an active kind of ongoing thing. Um, Uber's just became subject to the the congestion charge in in central London uh, in April, and that they saw that that had a pretty immediate impact. Um, but there's, I mean, some places do charge more uh, per ride for Uber's. Um, you know, so th- there are kind of a variety of things that people can do. Let's talk about the congestion uh, thing, since you brought up London for a second. One of the, the, I guess, factual disputes, for lack of a better expression, between you and the administration is what's really going on in uh, London. There is congestion pricing. There's a toll to enter the city there. Correct. Uh, uh, the contention that you publish from the people in London who are working on this is that it has dramatically cut uh, traffic downtown. The contention of the administration, at least in the Boston Globe, is that there's been virtually uh, no change. Stephanie Pollock, Secretary of Transportation, was with me the other night on television. I asked her about the discrepancy, at least in understand, uh, on a set of facts. Here's what Secretary Pollock had to say. London is more congested than Boston as a whole. Um, there is a portion of London where there has been a congestion fee that there's some data that says is working and some data that says it's not as great. 
The one question I would ask those people who are proposing that is, if it's as popular as they say and it's as effective as they say, how come they've never increased it to cover more of the city of London? What's the answer to that? Uh, oh, you didn't hear that? I didn't hear that. Oh, so I'm I, sorry. I, I can, yeah. Oh, you didn't have headphones on. It's my, my fault. My, my apologies. Here's what she said. She said, well, actually, we can play it again. Our fault for not telling Andrew to have it. Here is uh, Secretary Pollock. You all at home get to hear it a second time. London is more congested than Boston as a whole. Um, there is a portion of London where there has been a congestion fee that there's some data that says is working and some data that says it's not as great. The one question I would ask those people who are proposing that is, if it's as popular as they say and it's as effective as they say, how come they've never increased it to cover more of the city of London? So, one, what's the answer to that? And two, who is right on the underlying facts, that factual dispute between the Globe, well, the Globe quoting the people in London and Secretary Bullock? I mean, so London put in a congestion charge in 2003. So it's about 16 years old. And if you think about just for some, uh, to give a little perspective, I mean, that was four years before the iPhone came out, you know, so uh, and it had a pretty dramatic uh, immediate impact, so much so that they began using the road for other things, that they uh, took away lanes of traffic for this uh, this whole new system of, of protected bike lanes that they have, which is pretty extraordinary. They made, you know, a bunch of, you know, bus lanes and then not only bus lanes, but bus only streets. They expanded pedestrian malls. So they literally took away road space. Um, without question, as it has evolved and as things like Uber have been invented, as things like the, you know, as, you know, Amazon has taken hold, that it has gone up and down in terms of congestion. But what what is unmistakable is that people move into central London in this very, very small area that has a congestion charge. Uh, the number of people who drive and take taxis has dropped dramatically over the 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 life of this of the congestion charge and the pe people taking public transportation has soared people cycling has soared um so i think it has had a real impact uh i mean what may actually be a better example is stockholm which is about boston size uh they did one a couple years after that they did a trial in 2006 and it was kind of the perfect scientific experiment that they did this trial for 7 months and they basically they had kind of some self-deprecating um, PR around it, basically saying, like, if it doesn't work, we'll scrap it. And people were against it. They did the trial. Uh, traffic dropped. And then they held a referendum, and they took the tolls away. Traffic came back. It passed in a referendum. They made the tolls permanent. Traffic dropped again. Well, you know, it, that, that's a perfect segue to something that I've never quite understood. Is it, obviously the Baker administration is not crazy about congestion pricing. The thing, we've asked Governor Baker this a handful of times and whenever he makes his monthly appearance that's here, he said no to a legislative initiative for a pilot. And the thing I never understood about, he said his concern was, and I'm paraphrasing, a slippery slope. You know, if we raise tolls uh, on people coming during rush hour, then ultimately we're, we're going to be screwing, uh, he didn't use that word, I'm using that word, you know, working class people trying to come in. And my answer to him all the time was, you're in charge. If you don't like what the pilot does, you cancel the pilot, but why not try it? And then what I think, uh, my, my analysis was shaped more when I was reading your series, and you restated something most of us knew but I hadn't thought about in this context, is there is uh, – this, this is not an administration that is crazy about raising the cost of driving in any fashion. They did something that is totally counterintuitive, again, that you guys relate – they have uh, okayed two fare increases for the T, 
not a nickel increase in the cost of driving, which if your goal is, which they all acknowledge, is to get people off the roads and onto mass transit, is the exact opposite. You're encouraging behavior you want to discourage financially, and well, people know what the end of the sentence is. So is there some just ideological opposition? What's it all about? That's a great question, and we and we had asked both the governor that question and, and, and the secretary, and I think it's pretty clear that there is a basic political opposition to use price to discourage driving. What they say, and we put it to both of them, was we don't basically, we believe in, in improving options. But there's a big question is even if you, if the T is gold plated and, you know, and has waitress, you know, basically uh, waiter service, I mean, does that we mean call people... them servers, servers in 2019, thank Andrew? Thank just you. trying to help you out a little bit. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but are people still going to get out of their cars? And that's a real question. But you, but let me just, and again, I, try it. And the answer, it isn't like you, it's a constitutional amendment. When you're in a crisis like this, it seems to me, Stephanie Pollack was, I don't know if she was offended. I said, are you experiment uh, phobic? And she said, no, we have early, you know, we're doing early, uh, uh, was it buses or whatever the hell it was, late bus. They're doing something that they were doing. We're just not crazy about congestion and pricing. Well, if it's been tried in so many places with a decent amount of success, you try it. And if it doesn't work, then you decide to end the trial. I'm sorry, Joe, to interrupt you. No, that's right. At the beginning, you, Andrew, you mentioned we've essentially run out of road. We know we're a small city. We know we're set up in colonial times, so we still have vestiges of that and, and how constrained we are. But have we exhausted everything we can do infrastructure-wise? Uh, we also just mentioned bus-only lanes in London. We know there are big biking cultures in Stockholm, the Netherlands. How much more do you think that we, we can do? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, there's a, in transportation land, there's a, there's a basic premise that, you know, if you build it, they will come, that no matter how wide you build the road, that eventually it will fill up. I mean, I think we saw that to some degree with the big dig, right? That, uh, that basically more people will drive if it's easier to drive. So there'll be a, a, a kind of short-term relief and then more people will get in their cars. Um, so, I mean, you know, one of the things that the administration does talk about is kind of making, you know, little fixes, you know, trying to like smooth out rotaries, trying to work on lights and signals. I guess the question becomes, you know, is that going to be enough when we see, you know, just the volume that, you know, we know 1.7 million people drive to work alone in, in greater Boston and that, you know, that number has gone up by about 60,000 in the last five years. Well, should there be more bus-only lanes? Should there be bus-only lanes on the highway? That certainly is a place that, I mean, we are pretty far behind when we look at some other uh, metro regions in terms of bus-only lanes. I mean, you know, I think in Seattle there's, you know, more than 40 miles in uh, New York, I think there's more than 100 miles. In London, there's like 100 and 100 plus miles. Um, but again, it comes down to, you know, how we're going to dedicate road space. And how and many do we have here? How many miles do we have here? I think it's about 10. Yeah. Um, and they can make a big difference. But what the risk there is that, you know, you're going to have drivers stuck in traffic who might get upset because they see a bus moving. And but they were willing to do this, well, what's being, I don't know, derisively called Lexus lanes or managed lanes. That's going to cause some resentment on the part of a driver, too. Why are they willing? To, you don't agree with that? No. Well, I mean, there's two things about that. I, I, I agree. I think it will. Uh, I mean, those have been uh, – That's that. that is a whole other discussion. I mean, I think that – the thinking is like, well, as long as there's a free option, you know, and you and, and you pay to, to get in the lanes that are moving faster, the managed lanes. I mean, what I still don't understand is when we looked at a lot of the places that have done that, they built new road. And 
I'm still struggling to see exactly how it would fit just kind of in terms of the space here. But, you know, that's something that the administration is is studying now to see how that would work. Um, but that that has had some success in places like Utah and, and, and Maryland and other places. You know, by the way, if people haven't read this whole series, one I would recommend you do. It takes a little bit of time, but I would recommend you do. But it's not all bad news. I mean, there are some experiments. I don't know if an experiment is the right choice of words. Some creative solutions that are solutions. Describe the MIT situation, which to me is so obvious on its face and should be replicated in so many places. What are they doing over there? So uh, one of the things that MIT did was, uh, and this was an, uh, another couple of colleagues of mine who did most of this research, so I apologize in advance if I get a couple of the small details uh, wrong, but that basically that you used to pay for parking you know, by the year, and, and they didn't increase the, the, the price, or maybe they did maybe a tiny bit, but they made it so there was a daily charge. So basically, instead of paying once and forgetting about it, that you f- had to f- like be reminded that you were paying every single day. And that discouraged people just because, you know, that they realized how much, you know, that they were every day that it was another, you know, however many dollars it was. But weren't they pairing that also with a T-card? Correct, some, correct. Right, yeah. Yes. And so then also giving options. I mean, one of the things that we did was we looked at private employers and we found that basically if you offered the same option, you know, parking and transit, both subsidized equally, more people are going to drive. But if you offer no options... Um, and people have to pay to park, that, and and there are options there for transit. People are going to be more likely to take transit. And by the way, Stephanie Pollock said that the state was actually involved. She told me they were actually involved in working with MIT on this. I don't know to what level. I didn't follow up on that. Has there been a proposal to provide some modest tax incentive to companies, to institutions that do try out the MIT? Experiment or no? You know, that's that sounds like a great idea, but I, I'm not aware that there that there is a proposal like that. You know, uh, the sense I the thing uh, this may be unfair. So I, you know, the Baker administration has proposed this 18 billion dollar bond thing, which is a ton of money. Organizations like a Better City are saying we need 50 billion dollars, but it's over a longer period of time. I have to say, I don't get a sense. Emergency as a commuter. Uh, I don't get the sense that most people can't take this one more day, even though most of us are grown up to, enough to know we're not going to fix it by tomorrow. And I assume what Baker would say, and he should, is, well, Marjorie, as Marjorie mentioned, she saw the Green Line work being done practically around the clock a couple of weekends ago near where she lives in Brookline. So some things are being done, but sort of it seems to me the big picture addressing of this, if the legislature believes that we need new money, uh, as in tax money, just do it. I mean, get with the do it already. I mean, uh, what's going on? I, I would agree. I, I don't feel a sense of urgency. I mean, like if you look in the House that they were supposed to have debate on uh, on this issue and they, they punted it to next year. Um, you know, so I, I agree. I mean, there are some, you know, you know, I know on the red line that they've, uh, I think there's four weekends in a row where they're going to, mm-hmm. you know, shut down service and uh, to try to kind of speed some repairs. But most of the big fixes or most of the, we keep hearing that it's going to get better, you know, in X number of years going forward. And and you, you do wonder, I mean, because what ultimately the cure for traffic really is a recession. And that's what solved it last time. Now, that's not the cure that we want. Um, because what we saw was during the Great Recession that traffic, you know, vehicle registrations, all those things went way down. And with that, probably some of the political will to, to 
make some of these big policy decisions. I was very dispirited to hear you also say at the top of the interview that no other major city has really figured out this problem. Uh, but it also belies something, well, he didn't say they've solved it, but when we had uh, Mayor Marty Walsh on recently, I was filling in for Jim, and a lot of the conversation was about transportation. He had just returned from Los Angeles, which is in the process of funding remedies to its transportation problems. He was all hopped up on that. A regional tax that the voters right. approved for $120 billion. And that's where he puts the, the urgency is on, on the people, but do you see, and I, I, I apologize if I'm putting you in a, a bad spot, maybe you haven't looked at Los Angeles, uh, but are they doing something correct there? Is that a model for how it has to be done? Is the mayor right? So I don't know the specifics of Los Angeles that well. What I do know is that there's this old, old dynamic on Beacon Hill where you have people from Western Mass say, why should, why should our tax dollars be going to subsidize the T? And I mean, I think one answer is, is because one of the things that we see is more and more jobs and more and more the economic engine of both the Commonwealth and New England is concentrated in Boston. You know, that I think in the last five years, one out of every four new jobs has been in Suffolk County, um, while the rest of the state had lost jobs last year, greater Boston gained jobs. So that's one reason because of the economic engine. But two, I mean, I could understand that that regional ballot initiative, which is what the mayor is pushing here, could make a lot of sense. So you have people who are going to be most impacted by the team make financial decisions about whether or not they want to, you know, pay a little extra to enhance service and to kind of, you know, change how we get around. Because people in Boston are going to probably care about that more than people in Stockbridge. So uh, Andrew Ryan from the Globe Spotlight team, after this uh, Seeing Red series of a couple of weeks ago on traffic congestion here, uh, what are the things that are at the top of the list which could deliver the most immediate impact if Beacon Hill was willing to embrace them? What are the two or three things you looked at that, that you know, putting politics aside for the moment would would show a demonstrable impact in a finite period of time? I mean, one of the things, and this isn't necessarily a Beacon Hill thing, but I mean, that we, that we uh, talked about that they and that we've addressed a little bit is bus lanes. Mm-hmm. Um, that And that's up to, you know, cities and towns, but also the state to basically say we're going to make priority uh, and, and turn some, some lanes of traffic or lanes of parking over for buses um, because you don't have to dig a tunnel to do that. I mean, it involves political will and it involves political finesse because you have to convince, you know, neighbors and businesses that this is going to be good for transportation. And it has to be done in a smart way. But that's something that could have an impact. I mean, you know, there are other cities around the country that allow buses to ride on the shoulder of expressways. So they can basically, if traffic, the speed drops below a certain mile per hour, that the buses can go on the shoulders and basically drive around gridlock. Uh, I mean, What's the argument against that? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, Minneapolis did it decades ago. Uh, here in Boston, we did it, but we did the opposite. We allowed cars to drive on the shoulder and not buses. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure that there are I, – I, I don't totally understand it, to be honest with you. One of the things that Jim and I were talking about before you arrived here, is it fair for the media to, to keep asking Governor Baker how much he rides the T or, or chide him for, for not riding the T? And you point out a, not a lot of our public officials, it seems, use public transportation. But but how, how important is that? Before you answer debate? that, by the way, we asked Governor Baker that the other day when he was here. And here is the governor in his own words. I rode the commuter rail for a lot of years. I rode the T for a lot of years. And I talk to people all the time who ride both. Look, I live in Swampscott, okay? So I talk to people who ride the commuter rail. I talk to people who take Wonderland and the Blue Line in. I talk to people all the time who ride the public transportation system. And um, I'm, not, I'm not a virtue signaler, I guess is what I would say. I think my job is to try and make the thing better. 
And by the way, when I asked the same question of Secretary Pollock, even though the governor didn't say this, I said, wouldn't it be good if he felt the pain that somebody in the commuter rail or the T felt? And she said he feels the, the pain on the roadway that drivers feel. He didn't say that, but she did. So have we gone too far with this governor ride, be Michael Dukakis or a variation on a theme? Well, I wouldn't limit it to the governor, first off. I mean, when you look at really the power centers on Beacon Hill and oh, elsewhere, you did this. You looked at this. Uh, that, I mean, what's clear is that, that the people, our elected officials with real power, have very limited recent firsthand experience with public transportation. There's no question about that. Um, and I don't think that anybody's suggesting that they ride the T every day to work. But once every couple of months, I mean, it doesn't need to be with cameras. It could just be to basically, I mean, as a reporter, one of the things that we do is we try to go experience things because you're going to you're gonna see, like, whether it's how hard it is for somebody with a wheelchair to get on that train or whatever it may be. But by experiencing firsthand, you just get to – you can learn, and I think that's what it's about. Does every legislator get a free parking space on Beacon Hill? Every legislator has access to it, yes. They and, do. and what would happen if, uh, in your estimation, if those within X number of miles, or at least those who have immediate access to mass transit – uh, didn't have a free parking space. I mean, you know, wh- one of the best examples may be the Speaker of the House. Um, I mean, he... Winthrop. Lives, yeah, he lives in Winthrop. Uh, I mean, he, his public transportation commute would be, he would have to walk to a bus, take that to the Blue Line, and then to the State House. Uh, it would probably be, wouldn't be that different from my commute from South Boston. Um, Has he ever done that, to your knowledge? N- uh, I, not that I'm aware of. Okay. I, and I mean, I should say that his staff, they wouldn't, directly fill out our, our survey, but had sent some statements where they said that he, you know, does sometimes ride public transportation, but we mm-hmm. weren't able to independently verify that. Andrew Ryan, you guys did great work. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having me on. Hope you get home faster. Than you <laughs> oh, that's right. You today. have to get out of here now, too, don't you? <laughs> I do. I do. Good luck. All right. Andrew Ryan is an investigative reporter for the Boston Globe and part of the Spotlight team that investigated Massachusetts's traffic problems. It's a three-part series titled Seeing Red. Again, Andrew Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Coming up, it's a jungle out there. Has Amazon, the tech giant that was supposed to create job opportunities and boost local economies, morphed into an invasive species instead? Harvard Business School's Nancy Kane joins us for that. She's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. Marjorie's back tomorrow. Before we get to our next guest... Uh, as you know, the Judiciary Committee hearing, day one of their hearings, is now almost three hours old. There are three uh, constitutional law experts, law professors, who believe 
that the impeachment clause in the Constitution would apply, not only apply to Donald Trump, but would merit his impeachment and removal. The one outlier is from George Washington University Law School, Jonathan Turley. Here's Turley arguing a few minutes ago that the Democratic, Democrats' argument for impeaching the president on a bribery charge won't hold water because the Supreme Court has previously rejected a broad interpretation of the crime. Here he is. It gives me no joy to disagree with my colleagues here. But you can't accuse a president of bribery. And then when some of us note that the Supreme Court has rejected your type of boundless interpretation, say, well, it's just impeachment. We really don't have to prove the elements. That is sort of close enough for jazz. Well, this isn't improvisational jazz. Close enough is not good enough. We will continue to bring you updates on this uh, day one of the Judiciary Committee hearing. But first, when Amazon courts a city, it markets the opportunity as one that will transform an American city for the better. But in reality, is it more like a hostile takeover (laughs) that not only amplifies income inequality, but consolidates power and foments political polarization along the way? Join us to talk about the Amazon effect. We'll call it on cities, as Harvard Business School's Nancy Kane. Nancy holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, and her latest book is Ford. In crisis, the power of courageous leadership in turbulent times. Hello, Nancy Kane. Hey there. Hi, Nancy. So, whoa, that's all I have to say about this <laughs> New York Times piece yeah. about Amazon. Whoa, yeah. My goodness. I mean, if we thought it was life changing just to have Amazon Prime and be able to shop yeah. on Thanksgiving night or the day after and get your packages another the next day, that is just the beginning yeah. of how Amazon has has really. Uh, is it even accurate to say taken over? But certainly embedded itself in so many aspects of our lives. Tell us about what they've done in Baltimore. So, dear listeners, let me tell you what story we're working for, working from. And I know we all have trouble paying attention to longer pieces, but this is a really good piece. Very carefully balanced. It is not a Jeremiah. That's why it, that's where part of its power lies. It's from November 30th, 2019. It's from the New York Times. Scott Shane, S-H-A-N-E, is the reporter or the writer. Prime mover, colon, how Amazon wove itself into the life of an American city. And it's, it is not a study of a place that, be, you know, of, say, you know, the uh, Seattle, which there's plenty of studies on. And it's not a study of either Long Island or the other alternative, I believe, in Virginia. That Arlington, Am- yeah. Arlington, where they're go- they are going to o- operate or open a second headquarters, right? We all have been part of that discussion in this place and others over the last few years. This is a city that has warehouses for Amazon, that has uh, – it, it, it has – seen hundreds, maybe thousands of jobs misplaced or lost because of the end of brick-and-mortar retailing, because of something very interesting that I did not know much about, which is Amazon Web Services, this growing, incredibly profitable piece of the Amazon empire that is moving very steadily into government procurement, right, doing work for government and the displacement or the, the loss of jobs from everything from stationers, folks that sell stationery, to other folks that do services that were previously um, that were previously done directly with the government. Now Amazon is increasingly in the business of doing that work for these for government entities. And again, Baltimore taking hits, even while lots and lots of jobs have been created in these warehouses. This is a piece about all of those factors. It's a piece about what it's like to work in a warehouse because the warehouse is still the primary Amazon magnet for for the magnet for Amazon employment in Baltimore. It's about what what rents have done in certain parts of the city, right? And this is 
much much more obvious in Seattle, where where the the, the headquarters, the nexus of the Amazon Empire, uh, has had a profound effect on rents, housing. Um, uh, traffic, et cetera. But it's about the the tentacular, I use that word a lot, the wide reach, the wide and winding reach of Amazon in one location, both people who have benefited from it and the people who have lost from it. And also, dear listeners, this is something we haven't necessarily thought a lot about always or talked as much about. What does it mean for downtown areas or places where commerce that competes with Amazon now in, in general, losing that battle, those places like Harbor Place, which was once touted in Baltimore, the waterfront, as a great national example of urban revitalization. That is now, there are now many, many vacancies. That is now becoming a much more deserted and much less vibrant place. Um, and so it's a story really about the cultural, social, indirectly political, um, and economic aspects and to some extent, the psychological aspects of this company that is now so extraordinarily influential in American life. You know, uh, I, when Jared was teasing the segment yeah. at the end of our discussion with Andrew Ryan, he used the term invasive species. Oh, and I assume you yeah. meant it somewhat tongue in cheek. But, you know, when you read this story, yeah. which you really should, uh, that's the sense you get. Can I focus for a minute on the worker part of this? Yeah, which he has a, quite a bit to say because yeah. he interviews different workers here, some of whom are much more excited about working for Amazon they than are. others. Well, so, they are, and but that's not surprising. No. One, they makes yeah. the point that union jobs, which used to exist there, right. which don't anymore, GM and places like that, they're making roughly half the wage, though it is right. close. The average uh, starting salary apparently is in the warehouse is twice the federal minimum wage. It's $15.40, an yeah. dear listeners, in uh, Amazon. That's one. But it, it, so, and they say it's still hard to make 40 grand uh, there working for Amazon. The couple of things that really struck me that speak to the, to the, not just the era we're in, but the worst of Amazon is warnings and dismissals <laughs> are generated by a computer. Yeah. By a computer, they so monitor so carefully. Yeah. Everybody works in the warehouse that if you're too slow, yeah. you get a warning generated not by a human being, mm-hmm. generated by a computer that's monitoring you. And if it turns out you continue to do that, I don't know what the criterion is, but when you when you don't meet that criterion, you are dismissed by a computer. Right. And while Amazon says to the New York Times, we do have some human involvement, there's no proof of that. That's number one. Number two, the other thing that struck me, they're talking about a smaller either adjoining warehouse or nearby warehouse where two Amazon contractors, this, this really contract me. employees, yeah. were killed by a tornado. When a wall crashed in as a right. result of the storm. And they talk about, they interview a woman who said she got to work the next day. She didn't know what to expect, but she at least expected some recognition, maybe a moment of silence or something. Nothing. Business as usual. Mm-hmm. It's like, dispo- you know, essentially it's it's disposable Stuff. Yeah. Essentially, they're two dead bodies. Let's move on. Let's get back to work. So the the lack of humanity, I know this may not be a shock to a lot of people who know a lot about Amazon. I was stunned by by both of these examples. Were you? Uh, I was. I was stunned by both of them, although I know a fair bit about the worker. I'm sure you do. The wa- warehouse production con- um, uh, uh, hurdles, if you will, or, or, or benchmarks. And, and and, and I also remember I'm a history historian of organizations. That's where I started my 
uh, my historical career at the Harvard Business School, and one of the first pieces of history I grappled with, which was fascinating, but also ultimately all about dehumanization of people, is Frederick Taylor and the birth of scientific management. Dear listeners, if you've never heard that person and the, that term, do not pass go, do not collect $200, go look this up. Um, this, is, this was the birth of a movement. It included people like Frank and Lillian Gilbreth, cheaper by the dozen, a host of people, Hawthorne experience, I mentioned these names. This was a, a movement at the early part of the 20th century to figure out how to make labor in an industrial factory, manufacturing setting, much more productive. It was all about exactly this. You measure how fast a brick a, a, a mover can take a brick from this part of the factory to the other. If they don't do it this fast, they go, right? They don't move 100 bricks in 20 minutes, they go. And, and, and it, it is all about treating human beings just like they're any piece of inanimate capital. So workers are just like machines. Workers are just like that truck. Workers are just another piece of capital, and you hold them to the standards you would hold a machine to. And that is what we are seeing here, is scientific management applied to the digital era or to a digital company. And it is terrifying, and it is exhausting. It's very interesting that some workers, by the way, these are, again, as Jim said, considered good jobs for lots and lots of people. For lots of people, they're good jobs in that you're going to get paid if you can stay. Right. And you have to be in very good shape because you're going to work 10 hours with two half hour breaks, one of which will be paid, the other of which will not be. You will have to walk miles and miles and miles. You have to be able to lift 50 pounds. And if you do not pack this number of packages, right, move this stuff, just like Herr Schmidt in the famous Frederick Taylor experiments, um, if you don't do that, you'll be let go. Um, and so, and if I'm you're not, killed at work, they won't acknowledge well, that you're that, gone the that, next day. That was just uh, so shocking to me. That was more shocking again because I've heard, I've seen this before. I've seen scientific management mm. in action. I just thought we'd gotten more liberated and more more knowledgeable and more wise, and we don't do that anymore like this. Because incidentally, most of those factory workers became alcoholics and died early. I mean, it, this does not have a good track record. This does not have a good ending, dear listeners. But my my point is. Um, that, Jim, was about the culture of the place, right? That's about the completely. default, de facto right. culture. So no one says, we're going to have a moment of silence for these two people, naming them, that were killed tragically in a storm accident in our, in our, in our other warehouse. They, we, in fact, I think the manager in the main warehouse just said, okay, let's make it even better than yesterday, yeah, that that's day. What they say, yeah. And, and I, that's so extraordinary. And the fact that that even the communications department in Seattle didn't send the message that says we're going to have a moment of mourning. That's astounding to me. And that says a great deal about what kind of culture we have in terms of the value of people in our, at least in our warehouses, right? That's not, those are not the engineers. Those are not the technology experts working in other parts of the company. But I thought it was extraordinary. And, and, and an extraordinary condemnation of that culture. And as we stay on the workers for a moment, here we have Amazon, which is one of our largest companies in the United States, yep. led by Jeff Bezos, arguably the wealthiest man in, in the world in the right world, now, I think. Mm-hmm. Owner of the Washington Post, where which implores justice through journalism. Mm-hmm. And they're filling this vacuum uh, in jobs in Baltimore, a vacuum left by the departure of GM and plants like that. And yet these workers are making uh, – what is their standards, standard of wage – 
and and working compared to what they would have been making if the well, GM plant were still there. Yeah, or, or I believe a U.S. steel was also a U.S. steel plant right. was also there. And the other, just one other little irony, dear listeners, for a particularly interesting to the historian. I believe this big warehouse is built on the grounds that where a GM manufacturing facility once was. So it's just you know a very interesting kind of history in, in a different turn happening. Um, so. It's very hard, and our, Scott Shane is it careful and again largely balanced. This is not a Jeremiah. I repeat, a large, a careful to, at, at some pains, balanced pains to tell you that that this that that to make forty thousand dollars a year, you'd have to work an extraordinary number of hours. So, so it's this is these are not middle class jobs. These are not jobs that would ever support with one person supporting a family. Um, They're not jobs that HQ two. Was allegedly going to bring no, no. To that, Boston, that when they came Boston to Boston, Boston or right. they came to Long Island, or they came to Arlington, offering. Or by the way, they came to two hundred and eighty some other cities where they gathered enormous amounts of information about the city and the demographics and the and, and the economy. Some of which, or a lot of which, more skeptical observers and experts on Amazon believe they were doing as a data sweep to figure out where they might want to locate other warehouses, other places to hold. Uh, computers for AWS for the uh, Amazon w- Web Services or places to locate Whole Foods. So, in any event, um, these are not those kind of jobs. I want to say one other piece here. Um, the number of of one of the interesting ironies in the story is a story about um, an agency in Baltimore charged with administering public aid, and and how Amazon is now injecting itself as a kind of procurement. Uh, uh, set of procurement capabilities in which they will contract with the government agency and other folks to supply what that agency needs. In that, uh, many of the people, hundreds of the people that, that are that they are that are receiving um, aid through through government services in Baltimore are warehouse workers. So you you know Amazon is benefiting in lots of ways from government um, from government services and government funds not the least of which I'm not talking about tax breaks I'm talking about the fact that 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 the government pays economic and food subsidies to people that work in their warehouses because a lot of people can't make anything like the what we consider the amount of money you need to support a family you, you know, know there because we don't have time to go through this whole thing right. it, there's this writer I agree even handedly Brilliantly, everywhere you turn, if uh, if there's a desire to buy uh, from a larger business some supplies from a smaller mm-hmm. business in Baltimore, mm-hmm. many are not doing it anymore. They're going through Amazon it- Business to purchase from right. a local uh, supplier, Fire, right. and uh, because okay. they have their pharmacies, foods through Whole Foods, and I, I think the important thing here, so that out of this discussion, at least in my perspective. The enemy, some may say, is Jeff Bezos. I would say the enemy is us. Yeah. I mean, one of the things they mentioned in this piece is half of Americans, I was stunned by the number, belong to Amazon Prime. Uh, I, 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 that is a huge number. We know that. I think uh, it's half of American households, I believe. Well, households, okay. So, but that's, so it's still, 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 still a very big number. Number two, in a survey of what are, your, uh, what are the companies you feel best about in this yeah. country, they made the point in the last decade, Amazon has been one or two since I think 2011 or 12. Google's down to 43. Yeah. Facebook down ni- to, 96. to uh, 94. So essentially, we've decided, because yeah. while I learned a lot from this piece, I knew a lot in advance too, we've decided we're perfectly happy subsidizing this behavior on the part of Bezos and his managers, no? Uh, so I want to go back. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. I want to go back to what you said. 
you know, whoa, is what you said, and you'll get your package the next day if you ordered on Thanksgiving. We, I think this story, you know, I have seen the trouble, and the trouble is us, right? We are the problem, is about the power of convenience. Uh, totally I really so. do. Even totally am, so. about the power of convenience. I want it tomorrow. And that is part of what's going on when, when, when you talk about Amazon business services. This is the Yentl I was talking about where, where you, Amazon will act as your broker. If you're, if you're like a big organization in, and want to cater a meal, they'll act as your broker and work with Whole Foods to get you the food and take a tiny piece. I mean, it's all about one click and I need it now without any of us allowing ourselves to, one, consider the power we have as consumers for good and less good or good and evil, good and bad effects. And secondly, we many of us know this and we go on clicking away without considering the profound effects. These are profound effects. They're not just profound for economy, culture, society, psychology. They're also profound for what they're doing to the physical plant, the physical footprint of cities. And, 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 a lot of what's happening has you know real benefit, but a lot of what's happening has extraordinary costs. And and the only thing that will ever bring a company like Amazon, which I compare to Standard Oil more than any other company I've ever seen, um, in, in terms of its power and its extraordinary strategic execution and just the ambition. There is almost no place right now, I think, mm-hmm. on the economic and social landscape where Amazon does not want to be. And I can't wait for the Amazon dating app mm-hmm. and set of services that's coming, right? And we know they're going to be in healthcare. Jeff they're, Bezos they're doesn't need health- one, as we know. We know. No, he does not. They're, and we know they're in healthcare, right? For those of you that don't know much about this, I urge you to look up Haven Healthcare, this fascinating alliance between Amazon, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Alphabet, Google. Um, about, With Atul Gawande, one of the smartest well, health people, people on the running planet it. And, running it, and even though we about, know nothing about what's going on. And it's it, interesting. It's Right. We know nothing about what's going on. It's all about lowering insurance premiums for Amazon and, and J.P. Morgan Chase and then uh, Google Workers. It's really interesting. So this is, a, this is an extraordinary Goliath now. And I think the only thing that will bring it into any con- – even slow the acceleration of its reach has to do with, one, government intervention, which will be little and lagging and, and important when it comes. It will come. But I think the second, the second piece is whether consumers ever decide we're part of the problem. And we're not sure it's worth that everything we want about Amazon convenience. I read yesterday in the New York Times, 90,000 packages are stolen every day in New York City. A huge number of those are Amazon packages because packages are now clogging up streets and ho- apartment building hallways. This, the, the effects of this are so, not to mention the environmental effects of all the packaging and flying all those packages everywhere. Anyway, we have to make a choice. Is this really, is the, is the, is the, the joy and ease of convenience really worth re- reconfiguring our world like this. I think we've made the choice, don't you think? I, uh, I think you know. It, it, I want to. We only have a couple of minutes. I want to touch on what you talked about about the government uh, uh, intervention uh, potentially here. Is one the company is really popular, as I said, and government pays attention to where the people are, at least on some issues. Maybe not guns. Or well, look at things. Long, but, but they didn't. They, they, they paid attention in Long Island because they're not there. Oh, that's true. That's a very good point. They were there, and then they didn't and go they, there. And they the, didn't right. – because they didn't want all the things but, we're talking about. But let me – in this story, the writer uh, makes – repeats the argument that Jeff Bezos would make is, yes, we control 
in, in response to potential government intervention or attempt to break them up. Yes, we control 50% of all online purchases, says Jeff Bezos. But he says online purchases are only, according to him, 4% of total retail. So you could say, if you do the math, we, can, we Amazon, control only 2% of all retail in America, is that no? A, it's actually four percent. It's eight percent of retail is online. So, oh, I thought so, he said whatever it is. So, right. so it's four percent. Is that a powerful argument against? I know you're not a lawyer, but you're a great historian. I think is that, that a powerful they're gonna, argument. They're going to be saying that all the way, but Amazon isn't really primarily. Go, it's increasingly less a retail company than it is a full services right provider. And, and and their most profitable divisions are their are, the web stuff are is the, the web stuff now, are yeah. the cloud services and that is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and so by the time there's a Congress will or a, 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 any trust division will, willing to undertake this right then we're going they're not going to be able to say that in the same way and that's because that they're changing that and was they're part growing. of my whoa at the top is that there are things happening that we don't even realize and and the most salient point i thought was what are the two streaming services that most americans are watching i think at this point it's amazon and, and netflix, netflix and netflix can't stream without amazon Amazon, right because of the way they've integrated themselves between government, between corporations like Netflix, it's, it's, it's they're it's, embedded. And what they're now doing in terms of air travel uh, and, and airport real estate. So, again, this the reach, that, that, as Jared just said, we don't see a lot of this. So the, the breakup is not going to be predicated on the retail game that got them a long way towards this growth. That was just the kind of rocket booster, I think, to what's really happening in terms of this com- this company's influence. Nancy, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Pleasure. Harvard historian Nancy Kane holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. Her latest book is Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Nancy Kane, always great to speak with you. Pleasure. Coming up, it's time for our concert roundtable, a preview of some of the best music events in town. Brian McCreeth, Brian O'Donovan, and Rob Hothschild are next. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley, Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. Marjorie's going to be sad. It's one of her favorite segments. It's time for our concert roundtable, a much-needed break from painful reality. It's a preview of upcoming performances and a range of genres. We're joined by Rob Hoshield, Associate Professor of Liberal Arts at Berkeley College of Music. Hello there, Rob. Hello. Uh, we need a mic. Hello again. Brian O'Donovan. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, that's him. There the host know. of GBH's A Celtic Sojourn and soon to be a Christmas Celtic Sojourn. Are you nervous? 
Um, I'm, per- <laughs> I'm permanently nervous. Okay, per- that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> and WCRB's Brian McCreeth, he's the producer of CRB's Boston Symphony Orchestra broadcast, executive producer of CRB in Concert, and host of an interview podcast from CRB Gold, The Answered Question. Brian, Rob, and Brian, nice to see all three of you. It's great to be you here. Well. And uh, I just don't know how you do this every day. So we need some music now, don't we? We do, Absolutely. indeed. Balance it. Oh, my gosh. So where do you want to start, Jared? You can decide who to pick first. How about that? Since on the spot, you're the Jared. guest host today. Okay, uh, we're going to uh, as apologies for mixing up your name in the last segment, <laughs> Rob, we'll start with you. Well, thank Hi, you Rob. very much, Jared. Hello, everybody. Right. Um, so nice to be here. So, uh, so much music happening during this time of the year, so it's always tough to winnow it down. But I've got three veteran musicians. The youngest one of these three I'm going to talk about today is in his late 70s, so I'm excited about giving some props. The youngest to one of the three? That's right. Okay, That's ahead. right. Our first one is... Probably sh- present any day, then, based <laughs> upon that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They do qualify. Shut up, Jim. Um, Sheila Jordan is our first person, uh, a great vocalist who's actually 91 years old. Oh, my And um, she's a name that not everyone is familiar with. Um, she's operated sort of under the radar in a lot of ways in the jazz world for a lot of years because she has always had this strong interest not just in vocal music, um, that the, just the straight-up popular music genre and canon, but she's always been interested in free jazz and bebop and has found this way of combining popular music with free jazz. Um, so grew up in Detroit, moved to New York City in 1951, studied with Charles Mingus, became friends with Charlie Parker, and wound up marrying her piano player, Duke Jordan. So that's a pretty good way to start your career with those kinds of contacts. Started recording in the 60s. Now, one other thing I wanted to mention her before we listen to her music is that a lot of uh, New Englanders are familiar with her. A lot of musicians have studied with her because she teaches at the UMass Amherst Jazz in July workshops. She also teaches in Vermont. So I've met a lot of vocalists who study with her and admire her. She's had a lot of influence on people that we've all heard and are familiar with. Um, so she's playing at the, what's it called, the Mad Monkfish which used to be called Thelonious Monkfish in Central Square. It's a restaurant. They serve Thai and Asian great food. Place. It, it is great. a great place. And it's a great setting for music, a very nice comfy room with a nice big bar. Uh, and it's really a nice place to hear music. So to hear uh, uh, somebody like Sheila Jordan in this intimate setting is really an unusual treat. So what we're going to hear now is going, well, we're going to go back to 1963. So this was her second album, Portrait of Sheila. And on this tune, you will hear that kind of free jazz ethic at the Life beginning. Can be Let's go. <laughs> monotonous. We're always battling boredom. Where tell me where has it gotten us? Everything's still so doggone on drum stuck in a rut, getting Here's nowhere fast. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is recorded in 63. 63, yeah, I believe she was Blue Note, on Blue Note at the time. But she's what age now? 91. Now she's 91. How's she doing at 91? She's doing well. I don't mean physically. I mean, how's her singing? She sounds good. I listened to a a YouTube video recording of her from a few months ago. She sounded fantastic. You know, the thing is, older musicians like this, I always find, like, you might present them, you know, in normal life, and they might appear to be 91 years old. And then they get on a stage, Mm -hmm. and they open up, and it's like they lose 40 years off their life. Yeah. This happened to me with an opera thing that I did one time where this retired Met opera guy who was about 88 
legendary yeah. singer. He came out on stage for rehearsal. And he, was sta- he was sitting on this stool, kind of humped, o- hunched over, you know. And then he stood up to sing, and it was like the voice yeah. of God. It, you know? it really can. Judy Collins recently, I yes. went to see in New yeah, York yeah. at Joe's Pub, and she basically has yeah. become. She kind of, you know, tra- morphed into this cabaret person. That's mm-hmm. how she presents, but really satisfactory singing. Not the high soprano that Ju- Judy Collins was, but still amazing. I know you guys have had her on the show. Well, no, no, the show, but Marjorie and I were lucky enough to see the 50th anniversary of the Pine Street Inn a couple of weeks Just ago. Amazing. And she was the featured guest. She sang for 30 minutes. She's wow. 80 years old. And such a legitimate new performer. Brilliant. Absolutely. Just the goes to show that. Inside, that um, you know? yeah. Music is life. This is what it shows us. By the way, that show is this Friday wow. uh, this in Friday. Cambridge. By the wow. way, talk show hosts don't age quite so well, but that's a topic <laughs> for... So, uh, uh, Brian McCreeth, you would be next. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Um, you know, I, I just love the sense that I'm, I'm finding new things, and, and I'm going to credit one of our fantastic local chamber music groups for introducing me to something new this week. And that uh, the chamber music group is Chameleon Arts Ensemble. They're playing on Saturday and Sunday, two performances of the same concert at First Church in Boston. And um, what they are doing, Chameleon is amazing with programming. They find unknown pieces and known pieces and combine them into these programs that are just, just, it opens up all kinds of things that you never thought of. The discovery for me is this composer named Arthur Benjamin. I had heard of him before. Early 20th century, born in Australia, lived in Britain, ended up uh, enlisting and fighting in World War One as a in an airplane and was shot down by Hermann Goring, who would later Personally? become... Yes. <laughs> he was shot down. Seriously? I'm not kidding. It's kind of an incredible <laughs> story. Than a Herman. <laughs> yes, Herman himself shot down Arthur Benjamin. Arthur Benjamin spent time in a prison camp, and, uh, and there he met some other composers. Anyway, fast forward another few decades, and he writes this little piece for piano and clarinet. Let's just take a quick listen to it right now. It's not the most profound piece. Well, it, sounds, so... it sounds like the musical accompaniment to the short about Herman Goring <laughs> shooting him down. <laughs> exactly. It's a soundtrack in, in search of a film, isn't it? Seriously. <laughs> That's very cool, Brian. No, this is just a f- terrifically delightful little piece. It's not, it's not the most profound piece you'll ever hear. It may not change your life, but in the context of what Chameleon Arts Ensemble does, it's one of those things that when you go to a concert hall, you're hoping to experience. Something that just is bringing you straight into the moment you're there. I it, like it. I like it. I really do. It's just very beautiful. Where's this concert? This is happening at First Church in Boston. That's in the Back Bay. Uh, what is it? The corner of Dartmouth and Clarendon. I Clarendon. think it's Clarendon, Clarendon and, uh, yeah. Marlborough. Yeah, Clarendon and Marlborough. Thank you, Jared. Uh, yeah, you wow. saw classes there. Well done. <laughs> classes in what? Emerson College. Oh, you did? Yep. You were honored by Emerson College. Yeah, Jake Colby, you guys love that. <laughs> oh, okay, go. so Brian O'Donovan, here's your shot in round one. Okay, so uh, I'm going to uh, go in the, in the direction of levity, I think. One of my favorite Christmas sing-along shows of all time, one of my favorite Christmas sing-along albums is by a group called the Sweetback Sisters, who are not sisters at all, but they take old American music and a kind of an Americana approach and a kind of a fun Western swing approach to Christmas music, and they're 
Uh, they've moved their annual uh, concert that they used to do at Club Passim. It's grown now where they're doing three concerts at Oberon. So mm-hmm. this has become really, really popular and for good reason. It's one of those when there's a, such a crowded field of Christmas shows out there, I should know. Uh, <laughs> there, um, There's much to choose from. Um, but this one is just very, very fun. Take a listen to this, rocking around the Christmas tree. And this is really typical of the album and typical of the um, um, the music of the Sweetback Sisters at the Oberon. <laughs> yes, indeed. Doesn't it sound good? Huh? Fantastic. Jim is bopping to this. How old are they? Well, yeah. How old are they? 93. <laughs> <laughs> but they still sound great. <laughs> they win the competition. They're actually uh, young hipster people in their 30s into their late, uh, early 40s. Uh, they've got families, but they come from this kind of blend of folk and Americana music and a deep respect for the tradition, but a great sense of humor in how they uh, bring this music uh, out. And it's just, just a fun show. The crowd sings along. Do they always kind of swing along like this is in, in their other work? Absolutely, yeah. they are. I think there's some Berkeley connections there. Mm-hmm. Of course there is, Rob. Of course there is. You know, <laughs> especially with groups like this. But really, really fun. It's at the Oberon. Uh, multiple shows coming up. Uh, uh, check it out. Uh, coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. The Sweetback. That'll be the end of round one. Nice. Two more rounds nice. to come. By the way, I think the church is on Berkeley now that I was thinking about it. Oh. I wasn't a good student. I didn't say I was a good student. <laughs> <laughs> so Berkeley and Marlboro. You know what's, before Rob, you go, you know what's significant to me? First of all, I don't like that song. And two, I don't like <laughs> that kind of Uh-oh. thing. And I love the song and I love the thing. And I think it's a function of the times. This is something Marjorie and I were talking about on the radio. You know, what's your release from the chaos surrounding the world. In normal times, I wouldn't have been into I was totally into that when Absolutely. we played it. Don't you think it is a function of the environment? I think people are getting more and more back into realizing and, 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 and really, really viscerally realizing the importance of the arts generally and the importance of gathering together and celebrate what, right. what is our humanity at times where that seems um, particularly absent. There are days. very few places now where a group of people comes together and experiences the same thing in the same room mm-hmm. other than concerts. Absolutely. It's kind of like where it all happens. And there's a lot of research that, that says that it extends people's lives just to be in the, in the resonance of each other, enjoying doing something like that together. I mean, how bad? I you think know, it's Keith more Lockhart more was here yesterday, and yeah, yeah. you know this, uh, uh, Brian, in particular. Every time we talk to Keith or his colleague, Andres Nelsons, yeah. about this current era, they make the point that everybody's making that the value of music and maybe getting together with people to hear music, as you were suggesting, the other Brian, in times like these mm-hmm. makes it even more valuable than it ever is. I so. certainly agree with that. I think all of us around this table would. So, Absolutely. Rob Hoshiel, do it again. So, an, uh, a great day to get together for music uh, every year is New Year's Eve. Um, I've got an event to tell you about that's coming up at Regatta Bar on New Year's Eve. And it's the Freddie Cole Legacy Band, and the full name of this show is Featuring Lionel Cole, Nat King Cole Centennial Celebration. So, you heard the name Cole in there several times as well. <laughs> Uh, Freddie Cole is the younger brother of Nat King Cole, oh, wow. who was born in 1919. So this is the 100th anniversary of his birth. And Freddie Cole did uh, was always a musician, 12 years younger than Nat King Cole, um, and released one record during Nat's life. Nat unfortunately died early due to lung cancer. But Freddie Cole started putting out records around that time and has really had a great career of his own. 
And we'll remind you in some ways of Nat King Cole. He often plays with a jazz trio with piano, bass, and drums and loves the American Songbook. What you will hear that's a little bit different with Freddie Cole is a little bit more of a raspiness to his voice. And, yes, he is an octogenarian. He is the second oldest of my three today. <laughs> He's only 88. He's only 88. So you're whippersnapper. As a young man. Um, and you'll, you'll see when he performs, uh, he, he definitely br- uh, breathes all of that youthfulness that we've been talking about that music can bring. But he, where Nat King Cole had a soothing, mellifluous um, sort of sound, Freddie's got... Some of that, and he's got the laid-back sound, but he's also uh, got a little bit of the raspiness. So let's listen to a little bit of something from his latest album called I'll Always Leave the Door a Little Open. And this is him on the piano here. I'll always leave the door mm-hmm. right? a little That's open. Fun. I love to feel the breeze that passes by And though my dreams are few Unlikely to come true So if you are looking for a New Year's Eve really focused on the song and hearing beautiful music rendered by people who really know what they're doing, this Freddie Cole show is a great choice. Uh, Ricotta Bar. He sounds a lot like his brother. He does. He does. And and the sensibility, the laid-backness, I think, is there. It's just that, you know, those extra 40 years that he lived, I think has brought this sort of uh, deeper tone. You can hear that timbre, though. I agree with Jim. You know, what a great idea that is. You've got a bar, you've got Henrietta's table there, and right across the hall is the regatta bar. Yeah, exactly. Have your dinner. That is totally beautiful. Absolutely. While we're celebrating the old folk, too, I mean, the the other great thing is anybody of that generation, they're show people. They own the room from the moment (laughs) they step on stage. Very good point. It's a different type of performer from a different era. I think coming back to Jared you're seeing more of that now kind of incorporating uh, cabaret sensibilities to stagecraft you know before we move on to uh, round two for Brian McCree I don't know if you guys are music purists when I was thinking of Nat King Cole obviously thought of the, what was the famous duet when he was no longer with us with his kid with his daughter Natalie Natalie right, no, but, yeah. no, what was the name of the song oh, I, I can't uh, remember what it was Unfor- was it Unforgettable Unforgettable thank yes. you John Parker as always uh uh <laughs> How do you guys feel about these? I don't, it's, recreation is not the word. Oh, How do you man. feel about these mm. holograms? These holograms, but yeah, <laughs> Ooh, creepy. I, Ouch. So yeah, it's two no's. How about you? No, uh, no, okay, thank fine. you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There are so many young, talented musicians. Why not bring together young, late, living, talented musicians? The late Fred Taylor was really into that, mm. which may surprise Fred people. Taylor was into the holograms? He was so excited about doing a hologram. I can't remember who was going to be the subject or the victim of the hologram. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but, it, but it actually intrigued them. And I think they pulled them off. But it sounds creepy to me. It really I, well, does. I it sounds just, like a, an episode of Black Mirror. It is a little bit. <laughs> When Marie Callas came after me with a knife, that was when I knew it was over. But no, I was skeptical until I saw a bit of the Marie Callas concert. Oh, yours is show is the first time I ever saw that when yeah. you talked about that. And yeah. I, I was, so you I did see it. Like, I hadn't seen it, so yeah. maybe right, I'm right. prejudging. I was a little bit won over because I think it reintroduces audiences who might not know somebody. Obviously, mm. I always want to propel people to live theater, but it's also a great opportunity to become reacquainted with some of the greats. Mm. And isn't James Dean acting in a yeah. movie now? Yeah. I mean, really? That's not so good. Okay, in any case, uh, Brian McCreese... Uh, 
Well, take it away. Round two for you. All right. Well, you know, in classical music, December is just filled with all kinds of concerts. And, and I kind of feel like I, I want to call out a few concerts without uh, getting too far into it. But groups like the Talis Scholars, an internationally known English choral group. There's a group called Skylark Ensemble that's based here and in Atlanta. They're doing a carols concert. Blue Heron, the amazing Renaissance choir oh, from great. Boston, is doing a German Baroque group. And Boston Camerata is doing an Hispanic Christmas, so all kinds of music you've never heard. But the one I'm going to actually mention in this category is a group called Kalmus, the Kalmus uh, Ensemble. They're from Leipzig, and they uh, are based with members who were part of the St. Thomas Choir, the choir that's now 800 years old, the choir that Bach himself directed him, uh, you know, centuries ago. It continues now, and they continue to produce these great singers. These kids grew up and decided... Well, let's keep singing together. They formed Calmus, brought in a woman, because the St. Thomas Choir is all boys. And, uh, and so they brought in a woman to create Calmus. And I think you'll recognize what you'll hear when we hear it here. But check out this arrangement of a pretty familiar song. Rockport music, by the way. That's a boy soprano singing now, though. That's a woman. Is it? Yeah. Sounds woman like soprano. It. It's this Sunday in Rockport at the Shaolin Liu Performance Center. Oh. Gorgeous place to see a concert. Yeah, gorgeous gorgeous place. Five people singing. Show is vocal music, acapella? Yeah, it's all acapella. Wow. And what should I have recognized but haven't? Didn't you say I right. should recognize? I was the, wondering that too, to be honest. Or Blue Rose. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> I can't thank you enough. So what is it? What is it that I should have recognized? Aloha Rose Air Blooming. Oh, right. Now es I know. Sprung. I still don't know it. Es ist it's ein Rose entsprungen. But you, re you recognize rockin' around the Christmas tree, Jim. <laughs> yeah, really. That I did. Well done with that. Philistine. <laughs> Thank you very much. By the way, this we talk often about this performance center in Rockport, which I've never been. Everybody raves You've never about been this there? place. No, I've not. Oh, okay. Well, but everybody this raves Sunday about is your big yes. chance there. So, you That's know. when they're there, right? Yeah, they're coming up on Sunday. this Sunday, uh, December 8th at 3 p.m. It's uh, Rockport Music presenting Kalmus Ensemble from Leipzig. And it's a whole program of, uh, as we say, acapella music that mm -hmm. is uh, across the centuries Christmas music that's gorgeous stuff. And Leipzig was in town recently for Anders Nelson's. Yeah, yeah, the Gavon um, whole week of them, right? Where he, yeah. he, he directs an orchestra there as well. But right. I, that right. was another, another incredible... The, 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 <laughs> Merging, for lack of a better verb, of those two orchestras yeah. was unbelievable. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Wasn't it? I mean, it's just, it is jaw-droppingly great. Overwhelming sound, yeah. yeah just it's true. Beautiful. All right, okay, Brian, Brian Donovan. Donovan. Well, uh, recently we had a, uh, I was involved uh, a little peripherally in the uh, 60th anniversary for, for pa pa Club Passim. In fact, you were joined by Yez and Betsy Siggins in out, here. by the way. When John Baez walked into the studio, <laughs> I was about, a little excited, we'll I talk say. about aging gracefully, she and just amazing. she is just an amazing person for, in so many different ways. But but I was hosting that night, and, and there oh. were a whole variety of, of musicians coming on stage, everybody from Peter Wolf to... 
uh, Josh Ritter to Paddy Griffin. And uh, Soli Canto is a well-known Cambridge-based group, mm-hmm. uh, Rosie and Brian Amador. But they brought their daughter onto the stage with them, uh, who's in her 20s, a young singer-songwriter. And honestly, she literally, her voice is so beautiful and clear. She was singing in Spanish, as they do regularly. and uh, But her voice just like just grip people so much so that afterwards Club Passim told me that a show that she had scheduled for one day actually turned into two days and you'll see why she just has this incredibly compelling voice that is destined in my opinion uh, for great things her name is Elisa Amador and take a listen to this piece self-penned piece called Salt Nothing tells Like wasting my time again Nothing tells like wanting to cry again. This is going to be at Passim. This is at Passim, two shows. Coming up on December, I'm sorry, January 2nd and 3rd with the band. But she's very diverse again, Rosie and Brian. Her parents are uh, incredibly committed to the diversity of Spanish-English music and, and she dovetails right into that with Soli Canto. But she's really blazing her own trail and well worth watching and listening to. Again, great young talent, Jim, coming out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. What can I say? What's the song called, by the way? What is it's it? called Salt. She's great. Almost yeah. like a Lake Street dive. Yeah, she's got that kind of vibe. But she's all... She's so many other pieces, so many other arrows in her quiver, really. It's just, it's really Perfect a voice. for that voice, Perfect too. Yeah. Speaking really of arrows intimate. and quiver, is the reason you're not self-promoting uh, Christmas Celtic Sojourns, because we're, are we doing it later in the season, or why are you not talking Go ahead about this? Self-promote. We're completely <laughs> sold out. Are you really? Uh, no, I'm kidding. Oh, so <laughs> spend a minute before you break, and then we'll do more music. Tell us about what's coming up. <laughs> well, we have some fun things. In fact, tomorrow, I think, on Greater Boston, we've got yeah, one of the young singer-songwriters from... Um, and traditional singers from Scotland is coming with us. Uh, Siobhan Miller will be on with you tomorrow, uh, Jim, on television. You're showing up too, aren't you? I'm there as well, and she's yeah. singing. She is, is she singing and, 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 uh, yeah, and uh, she is just extraordinary. And I think next week, actually, we have somebody coming in also from the show. That's why I moved in a oh, different direction. Oh, sorry, okay. We've got an amazing Nickel Harp player from Sweden. Who I gave it away. I was going to ask a trivia question. But it's a, Sweden. It's from Sweden. Oh, that was the answer to the trivia the question. Was it was, Sweden. exactly. <laughs> Nicely like, done, Jim. It's like the old, uh, the old question. Did you ever hear that? N- n- 9W is the answer. What is the question? Uh, what's your favorite battery? No. What, a road <laughs> in New York? It's, it's Mr. Wagner. Does your name start with a V? Oh, good. <laughs> well, that actually is, takes a while, though, to figure that out. <laughs> That's, good. That's good. Okay, so... It's a radio uh, joke. Okay, yeah. we got it. By the way, before we let do tickets, what's the website if people want to do tickets before Just you're back? WGBH.org slash Celtic. Great. With a I'm bringing my parents in a couple weeks. I'm very excited. I said to my father, you're excited. Are you really? He said, how long is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's sometimes a good opening. It's so hard to be a good son sometimes. <laughs> I'm going this year. Marjorie's going again. Marjorie will have better seats than she She was like in the, literally in the, in the nosebleed I'm in seats Libri. last time. I think she had snow on her hair when she came down here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to hear lots more great singers in just a moment. We're previewing upcoming concerts in the region with WCRP's Brian McCreeth. Berkeley College of Music, Rob Hoshield, and WGBH's Brian O'Donovan. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Fox, the radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. Marjorie will be back uh, uh, tomorrow. If you just tuned in, you're in the middle of our concert roundtable. We do it three or four times a year, four times a year, I think. Preview of upcoming performances through the holiday season in the area. Leading the way are WCRB's Brian McCreeth, Berkeley College of Music's Rob Hoshield, and WGBH's Brian O'Donovan. Round three, gentlemen. Did we go in the same order, starting with you, Rob? Yes, let's Go do it. Go for it. So the youngest of my three is uh, <laughs> 78-year-old Cuban pianist and band leader Chucho Valdez, uh, an incredible pianist. And, and I, I, you know, I love any time Cuban music comes up because it's amazing to me how Cuban music has mixed with music from other parts of the world, with American music, with African music, because of some of the struggles to cross borders um, over the years. And, in fact, uh, Chucho Valdez was once... Um, uh, not allowed to go from Cuba into the United States in 2003 for a while. But he did uh, make a lot of trips in the early days, heavily influenced by um, Afro-Cuban music and by jazz, uh, other forms of music, born in Havana. His father, Bebo, was also a very famous Cuban pianist and composer and band leader. He had a band, by the way, Chucho, called Ira Kere that a lot of people have heard of. They almost had a rock fusion multi-genre thing going on in the 70s for a long time. Anyway, so all those, the, all those influences come together when you, ever, uh, when you hear Chucho Valdez play. He's got a uh, group that's coming to the Berkeley Performance Center this Friday. So that's coming up pretty quickly. Um, but it's really worth checking out uh, his stuff and going to this show. Let's listen to a little bit of uh, a new tune of his called Chucho's Mood. So it starts out with a traditional kind of Cuban groove. Yeah. And then as he hands the rhythm part over to the bassist, then starts going freeform on the piano. I love what he does here. So very playful mixing of styles, even in that minute or so. So in a show, in this whole concert you're going to get on Friday, you're going to hear probably the whole wealth of Chucho Valdez, and he's had a long and really interesting career. Um, later on in this, he quotes Duke Ellington's A-Train. Um, so it's going to be a really wonderful show. And, uh, yeah. Um, Where's he? Where's this? This, at, this is at the BPC, as oh, we call is. it, Jim. Okay. Berkeley Performance Center, Friday, 8 o'clock. Chucho Valdez, Jazz Bata is the name of it. Bata is a drum, um, a, a conga-like drum that they use, that he uses on a lot of these recordings. You'll hear a lot of that in this concert on Friday night. Does Berkeley have cool. a new president yet, by the way? Uh, no, it's going to take some time. Okay. It's going to take some time, yeah. It's a tough I think act to follow. He is. He's <laughs> really done an amazing job. Yeah. We'll miss Roger. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Brian McCreeth. Hey, uh, Jim, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, that Leipzig concert from before because Why? that was a concert where they, they, they cranked up the organ that's mm-hmm. sitting there in Symphony Hall. You know, that you go to Symphony Hall too. and you see the organ yeah. pipes up there, which – Spoiler, those are actually fake pipes. The real pipes are behind those <laughs> fake pipes. But anyway, we see the organ sitting there whenever you go there, but you almost never get to hear it. After 
the the holidays on uh, January 9th through 11th, and then also on the 14th. There's a program where this organ is going to be the centerpiece, oh. and uh, and a, an organist named uh, Terry Esquesh is going to come into town, and it'll be an all French program. And uh, one of the pieces is the Saint-Saëns Organ Symphony, which is one of the really really core popular pieces. It's mind blowing to hear it. It's there's so much sound. It's so glorious. But there's another piece that's an organ concerto by a French composer named Francis Poulenc, and I just want to play a little bit of it because again, this is another mind-blowing kind of sound, but in a very different way. Let's check out how this sounds. This is the organ concerto by Francis Poulenc. So this is one of the more intense parts of this piece. It also has very lovely lyrical parts, but when you get a major orchestra like the BSO combined with this organ... It's, it's a rare experience. It's something really to look forward to. The conductor will be this guy named Alain Altinoglu, also French. And, uh, and he's got a ton of energy. He's also got a great hairdo to go with it. So, you know, that's what, <laughs> what you want in mean? a conductor. What's that? What does that mean, a great hairdo to go with it? Oh, you know, all great Flowing conductors are supposed to have great hair, oh. right? So, there you go. He would have to have a lot of energy to conduct this piece. It's, oh, yeah. It's moving so fast. Yeah, it? yeah. And wait, it's just wait, wicked wait. hard. I mean, you never hear orchestras do this piece I because like a lot it. of them don't have an organ in their hall. Mm. And, by the way, it's just wicked difficult. So where, where, is the, where is the keyboard when the organ is fully engaged like this? It's a console that you can move to different parts of the I stage. So, so they'll probably put it more or less in the center of the stage gotcha. because he's the soloist. But on the other hand, it depends on how the other pieces of the concert really wow. Come together. That's pretty but, significant. That's pretty dramatic, man. Uh, yeah, it's a very dramatic piece. Really, really fun to hear. And in the hall, as again you experienced, Jim, oh, when the when the Gavant House played with the organ, the sound is just you, you're, it's just everywhere. You're just bathing in sound. Mm-hmm. It's really a fun experience. It was, so. and I'm sure it will be. So, uh, Brian O'Donovan, you're going to take us home. I am, and I'm looking ahead actually for a couple of different reasons. It's January 25th, and this band is really rocking the circuit here. They're Irish traditional players originally. But but they blended now with bluegrass so much that they're the darling of the bluegrass circuit. But they're also going to be joining us, Jim. I, I, I regard it as your guys' space, Jim and Marjorie's at the, uh, library. At the library. Yeah, they're going to be it's joining us ours, on the yeah. 25th, which mm. is just so much fun to do music down oh, there great. in the community. So that's going to be on the afternoon of the 25th during a Celtic sojourn. And then they head over to Somerville Theatre. Uh, Can I just interrupt to say, sure. hearing music there too, I don't know if it's the best acoustics. It is a great environment. It really I, I agree is with fun. It. It's it great. kind of doesn't matter if it's the best acoustics it's or not. It's I just agree. a great place to be, and we're, we're so lucky to have it. Is that January 25th? Yes. yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I'm, I am looking ahead, but again, it gives me the opportunity just to, to, to put that in the radar screen. People can come down and meet them. They're just very fun. They just believe that music should be fun, and it, there's no surprise why they're the darling of the bluegrass uh, circuit. Here's a piece of those. Uh, they're called, it's called Banjo or Banjoy, they call it. Couple of brothers, two sets of brothers, in fact. <laughs> we Banjo Three is the name of the group. Where are they from? They're actually from County Clare in um, in Ireland. They're very, as I said, they're very well known traditional musicians, but they've taken this and, and blended the styles. Of course, a lot of the bluegrass music. Appalachian music comes from Irish right. traditional music exactly. and, and Scots Irish music uh, uh, originally. So nice, just again fun music. It is fun. It is. 
Combine this with a Leipzig organ and you've got something <laughs> really special. <laughs> hey, why not? Yeah, it's like Appalachian combined with Ireland. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like cousins are kin looking, looking back at uh, where they came from. Mm-hmm. And it really blends well. It's great. Gentlemen, as always, you never disappoint. You really Thank don't. You. It was great. Thanks so Fun much. Fun stuff. It was great to see well, you. It was great to be here. Great to that see was you, a too. blast. Thank you. WCRB's Brian McCreef is the producer of WCRB's Boston Symphony Orchestra broadcasts. He's the executive producer of WCRB in concert and the host of an interview podcast from CRB called The Answered Question. Rob Hoshield is an associate professor of liberal arts at Berklee College of Music. And Brian O'Donovan is the host of WGBH's A Celtic Sojourn and soon to be Christmas Celtic Sojourn. It's been great having you all here. Great to see all three of you. Thank you. Great Thank you for you. listening Thanks to for the another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tune in tomorrow for Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Andrea Cabral, and Paul Revel. Our crew is Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, and Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, a- Aidan Connolly. Our engineer is John LeClaw Parker. What's on Greater Boston tonight? Well, not surprisingly, we're going to lead with uh, the Democratic report last night on impeachment of the Intelligence Committee and day one of the Judiciary Committee hearings. Don Stern, former U.S. Attorney from Massachusetts will be there, as will Lila Alphonse, who's managing editor for U.S. News and World Report. And then Representative Bill Strauss, who is the co-chair of the Transportation Committee, is going to uh, join. I was going to say he's going to come testify. He's not going to testify. He's going to talk about the uh, what do we learn from the ultimate release of the Graham Thornton report? That was the entity hired by the Baker administration to investigate what allowed the uh, license of that guy not to be suspended, and he ultimately ended up, as you know, killing seven motorcyclists. In New Hampshire, I think Bill Strauss, Representative Strauss, has some insight, and I think it's a really important issue. And then finally, I'm going to talk about social insecurity in Social Security, which affects people old and young. It's it tonight at 7 o'clock on Greater Boston. Jared, you were great, as always. Marjorie's back tomorrow, but thanks for doing it. My pleasure. I'm Jared Bowen. Uh, And I am Jim Browley. Thanks for tuning in. And again, Mayor Pete's with us tomorrow, and we hope you are too. See you then.